VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you so much for tuning in to the program. It's Wednesday, April the 5th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams is the producer of the program. You'll be speaking with David when you pick up the phone. Give us a shout in the queue on the air. So if you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial is 709-273-5211. Elsewhere, toll-free long distance, one 590 vocm which is 86. 26 quick touchdown with the World Championships, the Men's Curling World Championships, taking place in Ottawa, of course. Yesterday, Guju and the boys look like they're hitting their stride. They're 4-2 and two now after an 8-3 victory over the Czechs. they got a pair of games today, South Korea and the United States. States are going to be tough for sure. And how about that Dawson Mercer? I can't say how much, uh, I can't overstate how much I'm enjoying his season. A real breakout year, even though he's just a sophomore player. So his first career hat trick last night, absolutely brilliant stuff. So, like most young players, when you get a pair of goals and there's some time yet to play, the boys will rally around you and really try to get you that third to complete the Tour de Chapeau, the hat trick. So, 27 goals, 55 points on the season. Great stuff for Mercer. Imagine if you can somehow in the last, what do they got, four games left? Get another three, hit 30, because 30 is a massive achievement as an NHLer. All right, a quick touch in with the Avalon Lee Senior Hockey Playdown. So the winner of the East Finals goes on to play the winner of the West Finals for the Herder Memorial Trophy. Out West is Deer Lake and Cornerbrook. Here, of course, there was a lot of concern shown when Mark Getman, the starting goaltender for the Southern Shore Breakers, collapsed just a couple of minutes into Game 5. They called off the game. They did play Game 5 last night. Yetman says he's feeling good, which is very encouraging news. And the Shore, an energized Southern Shore team, they took on the Caps, beat them 4-1. Got a 3-2 lead in the series. The Caps will have to stave off elimination tonight at the Jack Byrne Arena in Game number 6. All right, stick with the sporting messaging. So we've long understood, in preparation to host the 2025 Canada Summer Games, you know, there had to be a new track, and that's going to be built just below the Aquarina, where the old track used to be. And then it's the Aquarina itself. So it's not up to standards to host a national championship. We've long understood this. So there's been some engineering assessments of the facility. Apparently two different assessments have been done. Time is becoming of the essence, as it always is. So apparently whatever the forecasted monies for the said updates now has gone to a certain higher level. We're not exactly sure what that is. There was about... million dollars earmarked for some of the work needed to be done about six and a half million of that was for the aquarina but i don't even know what the status is of completing that particular task because it's not going to be a flip a switch and overnight the aquarina is ready for national championships so and people will bemoan the fact that you know even hosting something like this is a waste of money with all the needs that we have And you know me, I disagree. I think that some of these recreational facilities, healthy lifestyle facilities, are an important part of society. And on that front. And so, I mean, economic activity will be absolutely in the $10 million plus when people make their way here for two different weeks of competition. Thousands of athletes and their parents and their managers, supporters and family will be here. And on that front. Well, quickly, another swimming note. This one's interesting and it's a little bit off the beaten track. So we've been talking about the world record set by Summer McIntosh in the most recent swimming trials uh, over the past weekend. Set three records. Unbelievable stuff. It was on this date in 1927. Johnny Weissmuller set two world records in the 100 and the 200-meter freestyle. So Johnny Weissmuller is a pretty infamous guy. People may know him as an Olympian and a world record-setting swimmer, but of course Johnny Weissmuller was Tarzan. So 
The interesting part of Tarzan, and people in your mind's eye can picture, maybe many of you watched it like I did, but it's the infamous victory cry of the bull ape, the famous Tarzan yell. And the story's about where does the yell come from? Johnny Weissmuller and his family maintained it was his own voice, but there's lots of legends about where it actually came from. One claims that a fellow named Lloyd Thomas Leach, he was an opera singer into the 40s and 50s, and apparently he sang it. No, apparently not. According to another story, this one from columnist L.M. Boyd, is that the voice, the yell, is blended in with that voice as the growl of a dog, a trill sung by a soprano, a note played on the violin's G-string, and the howl of a hyena recorded backwards. Then there's another story about it's an Australian yodel played backwards at abnormally quick pace. But if you go down and look at it, it's a, it is indeed a palindrome. So they play it forwards and backwards. It sounds the same. But there is some obvious manipulation. So say sound editors. But the Tarzan yell, Johnny Weissmuller, world records. How about that? All right. So I mentioned fees for you know, healthy lifestyle and recreational facilities, which are required. How many people would love to get into some organized sports or to have a membership or a pass to go to the Aquarina or the Field House or some gym or whatever located near where you live, but for some it's cost prohibitive. So when we talk about trying to adjust for more proactive health and managing one's health versus reactionary system that we currently have in place, you know, access to these facilities can be important. Now, you can absolutely see a physical benefit simply by going for a walk, but some other activities like a swim or a bit of racquetball or squash or whatever the case may be, badminton, for some, the fees just keep them out of there. So in some countries where they pay close attention to people's overall health and access, the fees are minimal or non-existent. Anyway, nothing's free in this world, but you know what I mean. And some of the folks that may indeed be coming for the 2025 games will choose to stay at a short-term rental, notably an Airbnb. So the industry, especially those in the traditional bed and breakfast model, they've been asking for the government to make some sort of move to bring Airbnbs into the fold that they reside in. And now the province has made an announcement to do exactly that. Now, I'm not 100% sure what this means. So back in the 70s, there was a Tourism Establishment Act. Now it's been renamed the Tourism Accommodations Act. And so what they're saying is that Airbnbs and other short-term rentals must register with the province follow the same municipal and provincial guidelines as established tourism operators. Okay, so this all has to be done by March 31st, 2024. Minister Responsible Steve Crocker says that if the Airbnbs are not registered with the province, then they will be unable to and disallowed from using any online marketing platform so they can't be advertised. How that works? Not really sure. But here's the question I would have, and I'm not in the Airbnb or B&B business, is what comes with having to register with the province. What exactly is involved and included in that? Airbnb has been an enormous source of revenue for people in this province. Even just in this neck of the woods, Destination St. John says there's over 800 unlicensed operators just on the Northeast Avalon. 68,000 room nights for these operators and generated $14 million in revenue. Now they're going to be brought into the fall with the established traditional offerings, but what exactly does that mean? So if you're a B&B operator, or maybe Minister Crocker, or an Airbnb operator, have a concern one way or the other, and can help fill in the blanks with what comes with registering with the province, we would appreciate that this morning. Okay. So we spoke with Yvette Coffey from the Registered Nurses Union yesterday about what people have been clamoring for, and that's to ensure that every healthcare professional does what he or she is trained to do. So we started with registered nurses. 
Still some looming questions and some slight difference of opinion between the College of Nurses and the Registered Nurses Union. The college says this is going to ease the workload for registered nurses because they won't have to jump through so many hurdles to get the treatment that a patient needs. The, uh, the Registered Nurses Union, not so much. Not really speaking or singing from the same songbook. So, uh, with the additional training required, ability to prescribe medications, diagnostic testing, referral to specialists, you all know the deal. But in an effort to be qualified and trained to prescribe a medication, they're going to have to do three different training models. They're going to, it's going to take about a year to complete. So we don't know if they're going to do it on the job, on their own time, how it's going to work with a new nurse practitioner that oversees the training, whether or not they're going to get paid more for taking on additional responsibilities. Some of these huge questions are still looming with very little in the way details. Now, like most things that are these preliminary announcements, details are hard to come by, but this sounds like it can indeed make things better for the system. I'm not so sure how many registered nurses are going to take this on, especially if it requires them doing it on their own time and possibility with no additional pay. So that's one. But a good announcement yesterday, I think, for the pharmacists of the province and consequently for their patients or customers. So it's long been confusing that someone who's really intimately knowledgeable about pharmaceuticals and prescriptions, being a pharmacist, was unable to do so many fundamental issues. Now they're going to expand the opportunity for a pharmacist to be able to renew your prescription from 90 days to the course of an entire year. Makes a lot of sense. Okay, so four new ailments and conditions have been added to their list of what they can do. And they include conjunctivitis, pink eye, fungal nail infections, shingles, and uncomplicated urinary tract infections. Also, there's going to be an issue where they can get universal coverage for some other ailments as opposed to customers having to pay out of pocket. So the first one is called gastroesophageal reflux disease. Is that a funny or a fancy way of saying heartburn? Maybe. Nicotine dependence, cold sores, fungal skin infections, hemorrhoids. So previously, patients paid out of pocket unless they were covered by the provincial prescription plan. Uh, we heard from Janice Adu on the VOCM Morning Show with Ben and Jerry Lynn this morning. They're quite pleased with this, even though there's more that can and possibly should be done by pharmacists in the province. So... It's much more likely you have access to a pharmacist than you do to any other healthcare professional, whether it be the LPN, nurse practitioner, registered nurse, or a family doctor. So this does come with a price tag. It's going to be about $8.2 million this year. And once, it's, once everyone is on board, it's going to have an annual spend of about $16.6 million. But that seems to be a pragmatic move. Your thoughts? Most welcome. All right, so as you heard, as faithful listeners to the morning show here, on your VOCM. The Deputy Prime Minister, the Minister of Finance, Christian Freeland, was in studio and a conversation, an interview with Ben Murphy. One of the contentious issues over the last couple of days when people read or heard the budget speech and read through some of the documentation regarding electricity generation and the problems whether we're in or we're out of the Atlantic Loop. When I first read it, like the Premier says it was a benign omission, okay, I kind of thought the same thing because the math is pretty clear. For the amount of generation required to power the Maritimes or the Atlantic provinces without Newfoundland and Labrador, it's just not there. So Minister Freeland this morning confirmed, she was pretty, st pretty stern on this one, saying this province is absolutely in. The way they talked about it in the budget, says Minister Freeland, is that it was simply about the stage at which construction is or lies for New Brunswick, Nova Scotia, and Quebec. All right, 
David Brazel, leader of the official opposition, says that this displays favoritism, and this is nothing new for people in this neck of the woods or this part of the country, that Quebec really does carry a very, very big stick and gets a lot of preferential treatment from federal governments, regardless of stripe. So does this compromise the 2041 negotiations? I don't know. But this whole Atlantic Loop, it's about time that the federal government starts to give us a bit more detail about how it looks and works. It's fine to tell us that we're in, but in where? In what? With what capacity? Where are we on the hierarchy? Or is it everyone will be on bended knee to the province of Quebec and Hydro-Quebec? Which, of course, with their 37,000 megawatts of generation, they are going to be the primary player. But that doesn't mean that we have to be the ugly stepsister or the poor cousin and just do what they think and want for their primary benefit. So we don't really know much more about that. She goes on to say that the country needs to double electric electricity per, uh, generation by 2050. And goes on, of course, to say that we have enormous capacity here in this province, whether it be through wind or hydro or whatever the case may be. Okay, here's some of the confusion that I take from that. If the country says that we need to do that, all right. But isn't it about time that the federal government doesn't cower to different provinces here and the interprovincial trade barriers that cost Canadians billions of dollars a year? And when we talk about electricity generation, to pretend that the provinces are going to be able to play nice together is ridiculous. So it's about time that there's the establishment of an east-west grid so that there won't be the heavy tariffs or there won't be the negotiations and the biggest provinces with the greatest number of seats get to make these decisions. They sit to the right hand of the father while the rest of us uh, uh, scramble for crumbs. No. If you have these big lofty plans, it's got to be easier for the provinces. So whoever has the generation capacity, whether it be hydro or wind or solar or hydrogen or nuclear, whatever it is, you've got to be able to put it on the grid and get it to where it needs to be. Trying to fight the good fight to find a market, which is obviously the key. Business model, environmental assessments, final approvals, that's all part of the process, of course. But unless you have somewhere to sell it, and to sell it there easily, this is all just going to be flights of fancy. So an east-west grid, let's go. It's about time. And yes, provinces that have already established enormous transmission capacity will have to be compensated in some form for it. But we can't have national strategies with the fragmented regional type of setup that we have in this particular confederation. So unless we get that in order, we really don't know where this goes. All right, let's move on. How are we doing out there this morning, Dave? Let's get it going. A couple of quickies. So we're anticipating today, maybe tomorrow, we'll finally get uh, an understanding of what the price for snow crab will be. And, of course, there's a long way, about $1.40 difference per pound between what the FFAW has submitted and what the Association for Seafood Producers have put in. So buck forty is a long way when we're anticipating, you know, just look at the prices but compared to last season. About 8 bucks a pound early on in the snow crab uh, fishery last year. A couple of things. You know, Minister Freeland also said that, you know, all the good ideas are not in Ottawa. No truer words were ever spoken. Same thing with managing the fishery from Kent Street. You know, there was a question yesterday, I believe it was Tammy, the fish harvester that called, you know, wondering how we hear very little from the government officials, specifically fisheries ministers, provincially and federally, about these really important matters. Because the fishery still, of course, is a vital industry, and it's part of the global food supply chain. Manager from Kent Street has always been kind of laughable. Then they go on to talk about, you know, buying crab from the harvesters on the wharf. That's a plea or a call coming from CNL. 
I don't think that is in line with what the FFAW thinks, but of course, good ideas and actual how to maximize profit from your catch, especially when there's going to be a pretty low price for the product, that's going to be a tricky piece of business. Now, if you're a harvester and you want to help us elaborate on what it means to sell to the local market, to a local uh, to the local industries, whether it be the restaurant or individuals or from the back of your truck on the side of the highway, what does it mean for monies that you have to pay back into the system? So I don't f really firmly understand that, but if you want to help expand on it, let's do exactly that. All right, don't want to go too long here. Get to your calls. And we can talk provincial budget, federal budget, even if you want to talk about what's going on in the United States. Oh, man, oh, man. Anyway, in Ottawa, this has been one issue where I think we have been betrayed by the tribal political ideology of one party or another because the status and the upkeep and the maintenance of 24 Sussex should have never been about, well, I'm not, I don't want to spend my conservative dollar to house Prime Minister Trudeau. I don't want to spend my liberal dollar to house Prime Minister Stephen Harper. It's just so foolish. So now where we find ourselves is that 24 Sussex has been uninhabitable since Stephen Harper left. And now, we read a story yesterday where they have found not only is the place infested with rodents, but the walls are full of dead rats. Like, how could this possibly be? You know, we don't have to be lavish like some other countries with the way their presidential palaces are built and glitzy and gold-filled. But for a safe, reasonable, dignified place for the prime minister to live and to host foreign dignitaries is just sort of sensible for a country in the G7 in the year of 2023 versus what the dilapidated 24 Sussex looks like today. So politicians, if we do think it's important to have that type of home and hosting facilities for the prime minister, the government of Canada, for Canadian citizens, maybe just maybe we can all get out of each other's way and just fix it. You know, similar to trying to maintain, upgrade Parliament Hill and the buildings on the hill. You know, it's not about whether or not you're an NDP supporter or Liberal or a Tory. It's the home of government. You know, and again, we don't have to mimic Red Square. We don't have to mimic some of the lavish surroundings of some other countries on the face of the earth. But livable home for the Prime Minister kind of makes sense to me. I don't know about you. You want to talk about it? Let's go. We're on Twitter. For VOCM Open Line, follow us there. Our email address is openlinefvocm.com. But when we come back from this break, you should be in the queue to talk about whatever's on your mind. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Hello. Line number one. Jim, you're on the air. Yes, good morning, Patty. Morning to you. Uh, first time caller. Very nervous. But uh, I got a little story for you. Last week, my wife tested positive for COVID. Uh, she was in bed for two or three, three or four days with a rage and headache. And on Friday, she got up, she came out to the Chesterville, and she sat back and she said, Mom, she said, something in me back. And I said, well, I guess, uh, I don't know if it's from COVID or what it's from there anyway. Anyway, she said, she was there for about 20 minutes. She said, uh, I think I'm going to go back right now. So I tried to get her above the Chesterville, and she just screeched in pain, screeched. And so I said, well, I, got, I have to call the ambulance. So I called the ambulance for her. The two ambulance attendants came, and a paramedic came with her. And uh, so anyway, the paramedic came in. He said, well, I can give you an injection for pain or whatever. And so that'd be, you know, fine. So anyway, he gave her an injection for pain, and she threw up everywhere. So he gave her an injection of grab 
calmed her down a bit. So he said, now the next step is there's no doctor here on Pogwan. You have to go to Gander if you're going by ambulance. She said, well, I don't want to do that. She said, I don't want to disrupt the traffic the next day. So she said, and they're not going to do nothing time no more in Gander for me than what you're going to do for me here. So that was all right. He said, well, he made a phone call. He said, well, I can give you another pain injection. So he did. And it seemed like after 20 minutes, half hour, she started to feel a bit better. So I got her up, got her into the bathroom. She used the bathroom. I put her in bed, tucked her in, and she said, I'll see what I'm like in the morning. So got up the next morning. The pain was still there. So now there was a doctor at the clinic. So I called into the hospital. I said, no, I don't want to go waiting around. Just give me a call when you're ready, and I'll bring her in, and we get some medication or whatever, or do some tests. So anyway, I brought her into the hospital. She said, come on now. She said, there's one person there in the waiting room, and there's one more coming, so you come on now. So that was 10.30. I was there till around 12.30, 1 o'clock. Uh, the doctor came in, examined her, gave her more medication for pain, done blood work, done water tests. Everything came back perfect. Well, because, I mean, she was known to have stone years ago. Figured it might have been stone. No, everything come back good. She said, I can send her to Gander. Uh, to get a CT scan done. So she made the arrangement for Gander and called. She said, hey, would you like her to go on the ambulance? I said, well, yes, I prefer, because I'm not going to get her upstairs. So anyway, she called the ambulance attendant. said, anyway, we took over my car to Gander. She went in and got her CT scan done, came out. She said, go down to emerge, wait for your results. Went down to emerge. As soon as they mentioned the word COVID, now in the meantime, this was four or five days ago, she said, you got to get out. What do you mean, get out? No, you can't stay here. you got to get out. Well, where are we going? We had to take her. We had to wheel her out, put her in the ambulance in the parking lot, wait for her results to come back. Got her results back. Everything came back perfect. No stones, no nothing. A little bit of stuff on her chest. That was it. Well, what's the problem? Well, we don't know. She's either a pinched nerve or a muscle spasm. So anyway, I had to take her out of the ambulance, wheel her down to my truck, put her in the truck, carried her to a hotel room that night, because there was no ferry, put her in the hotel room, got her stowed away for the night, got up the next morning, phone, no ferry. Very good. So anyway, 11.30, I said, well, we had to check out time, it was 11 o'clock, but I'm sure they wouldn't mind if we said to stay there. So anyway, we left the hotel room, 11.30, I went down the fairway to the boat, waited till 3.30, the boat came in, unloaded, loaded up. When I was going to board the boat, I said, I don't know if I'm going to be able to get her out to get her upstairs. He said, back off. I said, what? He said, back off. I said, boy, you're putting me on the opposite side of the boat. I need to get over where the elevator's to see if I can get her upstairs. Oh, he said, I misunderstood you. I said, good enough. He carried me over to the elevator. I took her out of the truck like a rag doll, put her in a wheelchair, carried her upstairs, and we came across the run. Shortly after this, now I put a feather in his head for this. I mean, he's doing his job. You're not supposed to be staying on day. Right? Right. So where are we now? So, okay. So shortly after this now, there were two pickups coming down for chain zones. Now, they got a 30-minute rule. You're supposed to be in the lineup 30 minutes before the ferry departs. That's about five minutes before the ferry was going to depart. 
the all out around traffic that was there for forward that was loaded up, there was 15 vehicles left, I think, on the wharf that never got aboard because she was full. And they said, well, chained on traffic is aboard, half of forward traffic is aboard, you know, but okay. So he wouldn't long loose these feather driving me upstairs when he let these two trucks come aboard for forward for chained on, which they should have been left on the wharf until the six o'clock trip, in my opinion. And how did that impact you? I'm sorry, Jim, I'm trying to follow. With the two trucks coming on, that meant what for you and your wife? No, no, I was aboard, but there were still people left on the wharf. There were 15 vehicles left on the wharf then that couldn't get aboard. Well, they wouldn't want to take them out. There only two vehicles. But if this 30-minute rule was in effect for the go aboard the ferry for change arms, I got to leave. If I leave full on in the morning, I got to leave about a hour, two hours before the ferry leaves to make sure that I'm going to get on that boat in the morning. They got an half an hour rule. You got to be in the lineup half hour before the ferry leaves. Right. Because over at seven o'clock, sees how many vehicles is in the lineup. If there's six there, they leave six spaces. If there's seven there, they leave seven. Whatever. So I got to spend two hours in the lineup, and they—I mean, it, it was—it was disgraceful. And these two people that came on that boat that day, they should be ashamed of themselves, as far as I'm concerned. Because the 30-minute rule was in effect, and they came there five minutes before the ferry left. Is there not a, uh, an ability for the ferry operators to prioritize, whether it be cargo or ambulances or stuff, as opposed to single-vehicle traffic? I, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, the, the, the protocol is uh, Transport Canada got this put in place, that you are not allowed to stay aboard your vehicle. That's right. But in a hamlet, you can Two attendants and a, and, a, and a patient can stay in. Well, you know, you're not going to get a stitcher upstairs, eh? But in your own personal vehicle, my yeah. wife was in just so much pain that day when I came over, what she was when she went over on the ambulance the day before. And all this on April Fool. April Fool's Day, just about to say. And it wasn't April Fool's Day. No, of course not. It's a serious matter. So how is your wife today? Well, she's still she's still miserable. They're treating her for a muscle spasm right now. Giving her medication for it and she's just just wants to sleep. But she knows she can get up and go to the washroom, right? Well that's that's a start and a step in the right direction. Uh you know, the issue with being in an ambulance and uh, being attended to by to paramedics or emergency first emergency responders that's one thing but the i don't know how they gauge an exemption for others who are unwell in their own car i don't know how they we could actually do that realistically even though i'm sorry to hear about your wife's and yours trials and tribulations but the issue about prioritizing cargo or trucks or whatever i pretty sure that's how that works but i will indeed follow up with the department to see if we can get yeah. some response or I reaction call, to your issues I'll, I'll give you the last word jim go ahead yeah i called lewis port on it mm -hmm. the situation delayed it was transportations or uh, transport canada's rules and regulations you're not allowed to stay in your vehicle that's right right now i i i'm not i'm not down to the man for that but if you're going to do to uh enforce the rules and regulations you enforce them with everybody not just that me that day when I came across made me take my wife upstairs. 
I appreciate the time and the concerns this morning, Jim. We can follow up with the department to see if they want to react to this. And if they haven't heard the call, which I'm sure they have, we'll send them the pertinent information. But I wish you and your wife well. I appreciate your time. Okay, thanks, Perry. Thanks, Jim. All the best. Okay, Okay, bye-bye. Yeah, there's, you know, how you adjudicate an exemption on the car deck is... I'm glad it's not wouldn't be my job. And the issue with regarding prioritizing one vehicle carrying one different load versus an individual car with passenger traffic, I'll get to the bottom of that as well. Uh, let's take a break. When we come back, we're talking snow crab. Don't go away. Weekdays on VOCM, it's Open Line with your host, Patty Daly. Join the conversation each morning from 9 a.m. to noon on your VOCM. We get people talking. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number three. Say good morning to the executive director at CNL. That's Ryan Clary. Ryan, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Do you any listeners, sir? Thank you very much for taking the call. My pleasure. How are you? Uh, not bad. Bye. Um, my issue today, um, as you mentioned at the start of your show, is the um, snow crab fishery. Um, what I'd like to do first, though, Patty, is put that the snow crab in a little bit of context for your listeners, for your audience. Our snow crab fishery is the biggest such fishery in Canada. It's the most valuable fishery in Newfoundland and Labrador. It's worth more than all other commercial fisheries combined. The landed value, according to DFO, of the snow crab fishery last year was $757 million. Northern shrimp and lobster, Patty, they're the second two most valuable, or third and fourth, no, second and third most valuable fisheries. They were each worth just over $100 million each. So snow crab is on top by far. So Snow crab is also obviously critical. There's too much reliance on a single stock, but that's not the issue today, Patty. Understood. The snow crab stock is healthy. As your newsroom reported last week, there's been a slight increase in the quota this year, about 8% to 55,000 tons or 121 million pounds. Um, the, The issue, again, is price. So in 2022, the price of snow crab at the beginning of the season was $7.60 a pound. That went down later to $6.15 a pound. This year... The price to the inshore fleet could be half of that in the $3 plus range. Um, I would say that it's either going to be around the low 220s a pound range or just over $3 a pound, depending on what price the panel picks. Of course, the FAW and ASP went to the panel last week with two prices. They weren't close enough. The, the, the panel ordered them to go back and come closer. They did. Those prices weren't revealed, but it's the price this year for snow crab. The inshore boats, like I say, is going to be around two twenty, just over three dollars, three tenths, three dollars and, and ten cents. Uh, but that is going to be obviously a massive cut uh, in pay to the inshore fleet. I mean, just ask your audience alone. Imagine losing half of your income. It's a huge blow to the fishing industry, and this kind of cut in price will be a huge blow to every small boat crab enterprise in this province. So it's something that we all have to be aware of. And the issue is absolutely critical. Well, even if the harvesters or the FFAW price is selected from $757 million of landed value last year, I mean, my rough, out of top of my head math, 350, 350 gets you uh, $410 or $15 million? Something like and that? Patty, that kind of loss to rural Newfoundland and Labrador, of course, the fishery is the economic engine, but that kind of loss, I mean, you can, your audience needs to get their head around this, that how critical this issue is. So from our perspective, CNL, we only represent owner-operators. We can't do anything about the price. Well, that's not true. We can influence the price like we did last year and the year before. But the bottom line is the FFAW was the collective bargaining agent. 
um, and you have a process that's laid out by law in terms of final offer selection that we just went through. What CNL can do is we're encouraging the public to buy snow crab this year direct from inshore enterprises at the wharf. What we're also doing is preparing a what we call a pot-to-plate program, pot as in snow crab pot, a pot-to-plate program to connect boats to buyers province-wide. And what we're doing is asking the people of the province to step up and buy fresh live North Atlantic snow crab direct from our fishermen and women at a fair price at the wharf. Okay, now so at this point, they, they can sell. I think there's a restriction of 300 pounds a week for whether it be restaurants and other restricted buyers. But what's a fair price? That, that, well, that's a, gr- that's a great point. The, 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 the provincial government confirmed this. Uh, you're right, Patty. Uh, in, terms of, uh, in terms of retail outlets, in terms of, um, uh, in terms of retail outlets and in terms of restaurants, they can buy uh, 300 pounds a week. But in terms of harvesters, snow crab harvesters selling at the wharf, there is no limit to how much they can sell to, to the public. So w- in answer to your question, Patty, what we're doing is we're consulting with owner-operators today, tomorrow – and we're consulting before we recommend a wharf price to charge for the snow crab. But I can tell you and your listeners this, Patty, it will be an affordable price, a price that's going to be higher than 2 or $3 a pound set by the panel. We'll announce that on Thursday, but obviously, first things first, we need to consult. Now, you've got 520,000 Newfoundlanders and Labradorians, Patty. Now, they're not going to buy all 121 million pounds of snow crab this year. That's not going to happen. No. But they'll put a dent in it. And if they're prepared to pay a, a little bit more, but still an incredibly affordable price, that will help out uh, our inshore harvesters, our inshore fleet. It will help out rural Newfoundland and will help get us past this, this bump in the road in terms of the inflation impact on, uh, on snow crab price in the States and Russian crab going into Asia and the whole nine yards. So it's a way to get us over this, this price hump because, again, the cut in price uh, by half will be devastating. So we want to do something about it. Okay. Uh, I mean, the price will generally, and we should be flexible here so that the price paid throughout the course of the harvest, even though they can take in the crab their quota very, very quickly, you know, has to be flexible to reflect what the actual market can bear. I think people agree with that. But what are the financial implications of selling from the wharf? So we've got this current uh, structure of 300 pounds, restricted buyers, restaurants, what have you. Does that mean if I go to the wharf and I say, okay, four bucks a pound it is, and I buy my crab, what becomes of that money with the harvester? Is there any requirement for monies to go back into the system and or to the ASP or to the FFAW, or is that straight-up revenue cash on the barrel head? They simply have to claim it as, as insofar as their taxes go. Well, first off, this already happens in terms of lobster and scallops. Um, I'm just wondering what the actual financial implications are. In terms of selling at the wharf. But obviously, if you're selling something at the wharf, you're going to have to keep track of it in terms of the tax man, issue receipts or whatever. Um, And we'll be laying out instructions. I'm still in the process. CNL is still in the process, too, of of laying out the fine detail on this. Uh, But it's been done in other fisheries. We can do it in this fisheries. There will be tax implications. We'll lay out all those instructions for inshore, inshore harvesters. This is about educating the public about the uh, – uh, years ago, my mother tells a story about growing up in St. John's. She'd go down to the wharf. Her mother would send her down. She'd buy a fish. She'd bring it back for supper. You know, we need to get back to that. We need to get back to buying from our fishermen, appreciating uh, where we come from, uh, the, bount- the bountiful sea around us, uh, helping out our, our inshore fleets while we're at it, the whole nine yards. So – 
The other thing that we're talking about, Patty, there's a second thing besides the pot to plate, besides buying directly from our inshore fleets, we're also demanding, and I saw the FFAW wish, uh, issued this demand as well yesterday, that the provincial government order uh, local snow crab processors and, buyer, and buyers to stop shipping in product from out of province until our prices normalize, until they, until they stabilize. This kind of move would also il- eliminate trip limits and fishing schedules, which you heard about so much about uh, last year. But, I mean, if we've got this crisis that we call it uh, in terms of price in the snow crab fishery this year, the last thing that we need is processors, which are, have been playing poor mouth, poor mouth for, for, for months, importing snow crab from the Maritimes, from Quebec, from St. Pierre and Miquelon. Deal with our snow crab first. That's our message. Yeah, I mean, the importation, because this is the straight-up double standard, we can ship it in, or the processors can buy from elsewhere, but there's tons of restrictions with steaming across and selling it elsewhere if you're the harvester. So, And, of course, it comes with enormous cost. Uh, Ryan, I appreciate the time here this morning, and we're all looking forward to seeing what the price lands at. You know, the difference between the ASP and the FFAW is about $1.40, and when we're talking about some pretty slim margins when you talk about the increased cost of fuel and to pay your crew appropriately and all the other fees associated with it, as much as having a crab license is a pretty solid piece of gold to have in your back pocket, it all depends on exactly what you're going to get for it per pound. Uh, appreciate this. Thank you for your time. Uh, one last word, uh, Patty. I, mean, I just want to. I just want to emphasize what you just mentioned there. Uh, processors can processors can ship uh, crab in for processing. Harvesters, our intra fleet, can't ship it out. That's an unfairness that needs to be dealt with. Uh, it, it, it's absolutely ridiculous, and the fact that. Uh, 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 fish price setting in this province is excluded from the federal competition act. I've said this before; is ridiculous. So um, let's let's we're going to move forward with this pot to the plate program. We're going to try to help out harvesters that way, and then uh, we'll stand up the next challenge and knock that down as well. Appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you, Patty. Bye bye. That's Ryan Cleary. He's the executive director at CNL. Let's get another one before the break. Line number two. Ben, you're on the air. Hey, how's it going, Patty? Excellent. How you doing? Won't take up much of your time there, buddy. Just want to uh, give a big shout-out to the health care that I received a week at uh, Health Sciences. We, uh, Me and my wife had a baby girl, about a week week old now, I guess, and uh, couldn't be more happy with uh, the care that we received from the ladies on the third floor and uh, up on the fifth floor, not just the ladies, the men too, and uh, the doctors, everybody involved. It was just an amazing experience as far as I'm concerned. And um, I can't speak to, like, all the health care, but I know that anything that we was involved with with the baby was just amazing. Well, first off, congratulations to you and your family, Ben. Is this your first child? First one, yep. Were you in the delivery room? Yes, sir. I was uh, I was part of the team the whole time. <laughs> yeah, look, like anyone who's ever been uh, lucky enough to experience it, like I did a couple of times and you have for your first time, you never forget it is just the miracle of life is something to behold. You know, even though the wife is going through or your female partner is going through some pretty significant challenges while delivering, it is, yeah. it is a wonderful experience. Uh, did you cut the umbilical cord? Yes, I did. Cool. It was it was a hard labor for her. She was four days, I think, with contractions oh before before we finally got admitted. And uh, once we got admitted, like like I couldn't believe the nurses. Like uh, 
the nurse sat with us the whole time to monitor and when she switched out when we got close you know when we getting close to the baby getting her it was time for the nurse to have a break so they switched out and the nurse before she left she said if this baby gets delivered i want you to text me right away because i want to be here for it so like i, I was amazed I, I just couldn't couldn't have been more happy with the health care and like I know in our healthcare we talk about oh we need more doctors which we do mm-hmm. and and stuff like that but our nurses are on the front lines and I'm telling you they they go over and above everything that they can to uh, help. Yeah, well no doubt you'd have very compassionate uh, staff on the maternity wards. Uh, what's your daughter's name? Everly. Beverly. Everly. Everly. Does that have a family uh, relation? Someone in nope, the family named Everly? Nope. It's just uh, a name that I had picked out. I, I seen it one day, you know, looking through names like we all get at when we're having a baby. And uh, now she got my name's uh, middle name, Alfreda. And uh, so that was just one name that we liked, and it was a bit unique. So uh, we went with that. Well, I think it's a beautiful little name. So, of course, maybe there's going to be some extraordinary, extraordinary harmony coming from Everly, given the Everly brothers and their... Amazing voice. How about that, Dave? He's smirking at me. Yeah, for sure. Okay, so that's I'm really pleased for you and your family. How are mom and baby? Oh, excellent. Yep, excellent. We're uh, we're just taking time, getting adjusted. We're we're really lucky at this point. I'm almost afraid to jinx it because we got to wake the baby up to be fed on her net. She's sleeping and sleeping perfect. We're getting probably more sleep than we did get before we had the baby. So not many people <laughs> probably get to say that. Well, uh, not me. With the first one, Nicholas was colicky. Oh, my goodness. That was a long couple of months. But, listen, yeah. I'm thrilled for you and Everly and your wife. What's her name? Uh, my wife's name is Faith. Well, congratulations to you all. Wishing you nothing but the best of health and happiness and love. Yeah, thank you very much, Patty. Uh, like I said, you shout out. And uh, hopefully one of these days she can come up and have the same success in uh, hockey programs. Hopefully that Mercer and uh, Newhook had. Yes, so, yeah. and if you're talking about women's hockey, add Abby Newhook, who would be a great role model for young female hockey players in the province because she's, she's knocking it out of the park as well. Good to have you on, 100%. Ben. Take good care. 100%. Thank you, Patty. All the best, man. Bye. Right, bye-bye. That's lovely. Love that. And, you know, there is no textbook uh, in how to parent, and every child is different. So I'm not, I don't dare give any parenting advice because who am I to give any advice? The one thing that I do think as dads in particular is to get to know the baby and get used to them because they're a little bit more robust than you really think. They're not as frail as they appear. So in an effort to get used to the baby and to have that physical connection with the baby, my thoughts would be change diapers. It's just a perfect way to help and then to get used to the baby and all those types of things that come with the physical touch. So change diapers, especially right off the bat, because if you put in a few hard months of changing every single diaper, by the time the baby gets on hard foods, then, of course, things change a little bit for the worse in in said napkin. (laughs) Let's take a break. When we come back, we're speaking with you. Welcome back to the program. Let us go to line number one. Uh, Good morning, Irene. You're on the air. Hi, good morning. Good morning to you. Hi, Patty. Uh, long-time listener, first-time caller. Love that. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Um, I'm going to be off the cuff, 
so it might be a bit glitchy. Probably you can ask me some questions. Uh, my grandson, when he was about uh, 16 months old, he we noticed something off. My daughter looked at her appointment calendar, and it was a Janeway appointment coming up um, in August last year. So we attended the, the appointment. Um, the doctor at that time didn't hold no belts about it. She suspected he had autism. I'm emotional, so... Take your time. You're doing okay. Bear with me. Um, she said that my grandson would need to see a child development specialist. Mm -hmm. We were fine with that. So I was in the appointment. I asked her, I said, when will we see her, like, or him? She said 18 months at the minimum. I was, like, shocked, startled. I was like, you're stating that our grandson is sick or has autism, and you're saying 18 months at the minimum? I'm like, his early development years will be gone. And she's like, well, that's what the list is here. And I'm like, okay, I was still shocked. So uh, we came home and we got a call, not for an appointment, with an online program to teach our grandson to speak because he cannot talk. Um, at that time, uh, we were still waiting for an appointment. My son, grandson right now is two and a half, no appointment, no appointment in sight. We've seen this pediatrician since then there's still no appointment so i just want to make sure i'm following the timeline here at the age of 16 months the pediatrician thought that there was the, probably the need to see a specialist to diagnose whether or not the child has autism and now the child is two and a half yes okay and still no diagnosis and the delay there comes with further complications for you and your family you know being able to see for instance a speech therapist that's the number one concern that many people would have you know depending where the child is on the spectrum because autism is different for different people so just make those forward steps to even just a speech therapist is a big big deal here and of course a diagnosis for autism you know there's no blood test or anything so the doctor has to monitor the developmental history and behavior before you get a diagnosis so you know it's bad enough to wait 18 months but then you know even your first visit to that specialist doesn't mean you're walking away with a diagnosis either because it's a process absolutely not now i do know that once we see a specialist private or not they should have a pretty good idea like if i'm two and a half oh sure has autism i'm just worried like that everybody that i've bumped into and talked to and i've talked to a lot of people about the situation since it came to light for us they're always saying early intervention is the key well where is the key we don't have it because my grandson will probably be school age and no probably i'm not saying he might not be diagnosed and if he is there might not be no programs in place my daughter did do a small small program online uh, due to the COVID restrictions, which was kind of good, but not good. It didn't was not hands-on with my grandson. So I'm thinking, like, what now? What next? What do we do now? Do we just sit on our hands and watch our grandson try to communicate to us, Mommy, and he can't? Like, I just wants to bring the light to this province. Listen, 
this is what's happening to us and many more. I've had a lot of parents reach out to me, grandmas. I have them on Facebook, and they're messaging me left, right, and center, and they're saying, listen, my kid is like a two. We're waiting. We're just sat here waiting, and our children are just leave being left in the, in, the, in the dust because everybody else is moving forward. And it's very difficult when you have a little child looking at you and cannot speak. And, like, they're all talk about helping seniors in the province. What about our, our young people, this up-and-coming youth? No one's helping them. Our province is in a lot of trouble, I think. Yeah, and, I mean, the, the number or the prevalence of autism in this province, now that I think with the... The spectrum is better understood and the diagnosis is better understood because, of course, when I was a child, someone who very likely had autism, we just simply thought that they were, as you said, something is off, as opposed to a formal diagnosis these days, especially in young boys. Uh, the numbers are, are really off the charts. So are you dealing with any of the advocacy groups that might indeed be able to give you some support while you're waiting for the diagnosis, uh, specifically the Autism Society? Have they been of any assistance? Um, no, actually, yes, I did reach out to the Autism Society a couple of months back. I needed to get my hands on a book. It was called More Than Words because I wanted to help my grandson. It's very difficult, me as a grandma, waiting for my grandson to speak, and he can't. Um, they didn't have the book, but they did give me a few avenues that I could go get the book. Uh, my daughter has access to the book. Well, I'm not going to grab the book from her. She needed to help my grandson. I want the book so I can help him. Where did she get it? Uh, she got it from Eastern Health. Okay. Uh, they offered a program, a very, very small program. It was about, well, I'm saying small. It was about six or eight weeks. And they just online talked to my daughter about uh, techniques and uh things that they can do to help my grandson communicate. It's more than words. So, like, he can communicate more than words. Well, I was oblivious to the fact that someone could speak without more than words, but now I know. Like, my grandson can tell me if he wants up, if he wants a drink, if he wants a cookie, without speaking. Right, and I've seen this in action. Uh, is Eastern Health unwilling or unable to give you a second copy of the book? No, no, they can't give me the book. Like, they gave the book to my daughter, and we shared it. We shared the book. But I'm looking now. I'm wanting to bring light to the people and let them know, listen, my grandson will be school age before any intervention is happening with him. And it's unfair, I think, personally, unfair, but my grandchild can't speak. So, like, you know, get the ball rolling. Oh, we need to see a physician. Um, we need diagnosis so we can avail of any programming referring to, like, ABE, perhaps, uh, not ABE, ABA therapy. Sure. Or uh, speech therapy. Are you able to just jump ahead of the diagnosis and try to get in to see a speech therapist? Because no. if the child's nonverbal, it requires a diagnosis no. and a referral, does it? No, my daughter is a single parent with it, with her son. Uh, she's had her son. She's been a single parent since he's been born. There's nothing available unless you have private insurance. So me and my husband, we're set on our hands as well because they can't avail of our insurance. But she don't have any. She don't have any speech therapy. If she had insurance, sure, 
we began right now and right. have have my uh, grandson uh, in therapy, hoping to accomplish some words, so at least he can say something. But no, we don't have any nothing, nothing. So kind of like the province is kind of like, you know, you have to wait for a diagnosis. Uh, then you might be available for some programming. And then where my grandson will be school age, probably. Understood. And just filter through the system. And it's scary. Like, I just want to bring light to people, let them know, listen, if you have a child and you're dealing with this issue like we are, this is how it's going to go until you get in. Um, I don't know how many specialists in this province there is for kids with that need this child development specialist, but apparently there's hardly any. Well, there's not enough, obviously. We're going not to, enough. during the newscast, we're going to see if someone from the Autism Society can come on and elaborate the stories they hear and the services and where the gaps are. Uh, I'm absolutely happy to do that. Uh, I don't know if you want me to, but I'm going to try to get my hands on another copy of that book, and if and when I do, I'll give it to you. Oh, uh, thank you so much. Yeah, no, that's no problem. I'll see what I can do on that front. Uh, yeah. I wish you well. I'm glad that you brought this uh, to- topic up on the show here this morning. Anyone else is welcome to chime in on it, and I wish you and your family well. Hopefully this gets attended to ASAP. Thank you so, so much, Patty. Have a great day. You too, Irene. All the best. Bye. Bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye. Uh, so even if you are someone, maybe because inside your own family, you have a copy of that particular book, More Than Words, and you'd like to share it with Irene, or if Eastern Health is listening and you'd like to put one in my hands, because I'm absolutely going to give it to Irene, uh, let's do that, okay? Uh, let's take a break. When we go back, John Harris, he's the Director of External Affairs at Munsu, that's Mun's Student Union. They have an upcoming town hall. We'll hear from John after this. Don't go away. Take a break. Join us weekdays from 1230 to 1 p.m. as we discuss anything and everything that's happening now. It's all on the table during your VOCM lunch break. Welcome back to the program. Well, a couple of listeners did some Googling uh, regarding Irene's call and the book she was talking about, More Than Words. Apparently, it's also available on Amazon for around $60, and I appreciate the information. I'm still more than willing to accept a free copy if you're done with yours at home. You'd like to share it with Irene. We can do that as well. Let's go to line number four and say good morning to the external, pardon me, the Director of External Affairs at Monsu. That's John Harris. Good morning, John. You're on the air. How's it going, Patty? Thanks for taking my call. Happy to do it. Doing fine. How about you? Doing great. Doing great. So I'm just calling to, to tell you about this town hall we got coming up. It's going to be on uh, April 26th at the Breezeway uh, Cafe and Bar. Um, and uh, we're looking to get some more uh, invitees to RSVP. Uh, so far, we've got the uh, Barry Petten, we've got the you know, PC uh, education critic, we got Jim Dan, leader NDP confirmed, and we've got the acting president of Memorial, uh, Neil Bowes, attending. But we haven't heard yet back from uh, Premier Fury, uh, Minister Cody, or uh, Minister Byrne. Uh, so we're hoping that we can hear back from them uh, soon. Uh, yeah, so if they're listening, you're invited. It's the 26th uh, at the Breezeway at 7 p.m. What's on the agenda? We're, we're going to talk about the, the, the accessibility of, of education at, uh, you know, at Memorial. Um, you know, given this recent budget and with continuation of the, the $68.4 million cut to the uh, tuition offsets and to the funding of Memorial, uh, there's been a doubling of tuition. And uh, w- what we do have is we have uh, the, the uh, Memorial passing the buck off to the provincial government and the provincial government passing the buck to Memorial for the doubling of tuition. So our thought is 
why don't we get both Memorial admin and the provincial government in the same room, talk it out, and really get some answers for uh, our students. So the new story coming from uh, the Faculty Association, their disappointment with this budget, and they speak specifically about $10 million reduction in funding. But that's just $10 million out of the already announced a couple of years ago reduction in funding, right? It's not an additional $10 million loss this year? Do you happen to know? It, it, it seems to me that it's a, a quicker than, uh, than previously announced. That it was, that it may not affect the total 68.4 million. That is uh, going to be a yearly, you know, difference, you know, after the five-year reduction. Uh, but it is increasing faster than than normal, uh, and we haven't received much clarity on that. And there's not really much security going on. And you know, my biggest concern is how how can you plan to have a family here at Newfoundland Labrador, and you don't know how much money to put away for your kid's education, or you you put away uh, 20 years ago. Uh, you know, started building up uh, to, with the with the long-standing 20-year tuition fees. You started building up, and you had that much money saved up for your kids. And now, look what happened. They doubled it without much warning. Uh, and, and now that money is not going to stretch as far as before. So, you know, we, we don't have very much security young people here in the future. We don't know how much more this can go up. We don't know how much more they're going to cut from education. So that's why we need answers. That's why we need the attendance of the of the provincial government at our town hall. Yeah, I'm a little surprised with the lack of detail on that $10 million. When I initially read it, I thought, well, this is the AFOR announced five-year reduction in support for month based on, and that of, course, of course, that resulted in the tuition hike. So I'm going to see if I can boil that down a little further, too. Also, I want to get your thoughts on the fact that given there was almost two weeks of a strike and classes for the most part were cancelled the university is going to refund 10% but of course that's just based on tuition does not it's not associated with the other fees give us some idea about the math of if those fees are included what kind of increase would we see in a rebate coming back to students well that's the thing see uh, we missed about 15% of our classes uh, and as you're right you know you that doesn't count the hundred dollar uh, infrastructure renewal fee uh, that doesn't count the uh, you know a dozen other or maybe not half a dozen other you know smaller fees that are add up and it, it and 10 percent is is not quite enough and and still we haven't had assurances on the full 10 percent we've been told that that may be actually nine percent or eight percent so uh, that's another reason why we, we we need a lot more clarity uh, and 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 the hidden fees really do add up uh, I think that the uh, if we're we need also receipts when it comes to what students are paying for uh, in the infrastructure renewal fees. We still see munnels, you know, leaking. We see asbestos all over campus. You see, you know, def- you know, there's there needs to be a lot more answers on where this money's going to, and a lot more respect for the student that students that pay those fees by being transparent. Uh, so. Uh, and and we really do need some answers from the provincial government. They 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 have not caught enough flack for this. I think that you know the the, the memorial administration has been falling apart uh, and and has kind of been falling imploding in on itself and has caught a lot of the heat for this tuition hike. But I do believe we need to hear from the provincial government because they have answers. They have to have answers for this too. Absolutely. And I do want to get see whether or not the student union has a reaction to a story in the news regarding an alleged, alleged sexual assault that took part off campus, but 
the woman who has brought forward this complaint says that the person being now who is now charged with this is still on campus. The university says the interim measures that are included here is that this person is only allowed to go directly to class or directly to an exam, and this then must take the most direct route off of campus, much in line with the court order that's in place. The, her number one concern, I think, on top of that, well, I, I can't prioritize her concerns. Another concern that she talks about is how she felt she was treated at Munn's sexual harassment office. What do you know about the story, and what does the student union have to say about this issue? Well, we're, we're really appalled. Uh, you know, a, a sexual harassment office should be a place where concerns are taken seriously, where survivors are believed. Uh, and what seemed to have happened is this woman came in to talk to uh, the, the, the SHO uh, and, and was, was basically said, there's not much we can do. Uh, we're not going to remove. We're not going to remove this person from campus. We're not going to put any protections in place. Uh, the, it was actually taken much more seriously when uh, they went to the RNC about it. Uh, and, and so it, it really does. You know, it, it really does feel like this should be problems that can be solved within the campus and within this, uh, the sexual harassment office. Uh, that doesn't. But but unfortunately, we, we didn't see that happen. So I think that the, there needs to be a lot done to regain the trust of, of uh, you know, students to make sure that people feel heard when they go and feel like action actually happens when you go to the sex harassment office. And, and, and unfortunately, this is not the first time we've heard complaints about it. I appreciate the time, John. The details one more time about the where the when for the town hall. Yep, okay, so it's uh, the 26th of April, Thursday, at 7 p.m. Uh, it's going to be at the Breezeway uh, Cafe and Bar uh, on 1 Arctic Avenue in the University Center. And uh, we're looking to get a response from the Premier, the uh, Mr. Cody, and Minister Byrne. Appreciate your time, John. Thank you. Thank you so much, Patty. Take, Take care. care. Bye-bye. It's John Harris, Director of External Affairs at the Student Union at Memorial University. Break time. When we come back, we're going to be speaking with the Mayor of the Town of Dover. That's Tony Keats. The issue, wastewater. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number three. Say good morning to the mayor of uh, the town of Dover. That's Tony Keats. Mayor Keats, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty, and thanks for having me on this morning. My pleasure. Welcome back to the show. What's on your mind this morning, Tony? Yeah, no, I'd just like to chat about the uh, wastewater influent regulations. And I know it's been coming up on your show a few times, and, and I know you uh, you spoke about our community there the past uh, few weeks ago uh, with regards of enforcement officers uh, coming to our uh, billing. A uh, little bit of intimidation. Uh, but this time, uh, in the last couple of weeks, they showed up. Uh, there was no intimidation. They just come for a routine check uh, just to introduce themselves. But, Patty, I think the big issue is the cost that we're spending on, on monitoring our wastewater systems. You know, we, we're looking at $12,000 a year for our little community. Um, you know, we're, we're, we got three outfalls, but we're measuring one. That's the only one that we, we have to measure by regulations. But we got some communities in our area that's measuring, you know, five to six outfalls. Uh, you're looking at 12000 So, you know, you're looking at over probably $60,000, $70,000 a year just to monitor those systems and to get transactional uh, authorization. Uh, but we still got to monitor right on past that. Uh, you know, we know where the problems are. 
Uh, we know, you know, what needs to be done to be to be truthful with you. Uh, and spending money on still monitoring the systems is money that we are putting out there that don't need to go into monitoring. It should be going into solving uh, the problem and fixing uh, what uh, what our systems are putting out into uh, into our oceans. So, uh, I think I heard this correctly. So, your town is now compliant with the federal regulations. Oh yeah, well yeah, we've been compliant for a while. Uh, we've been compliant on the first day that uh, we've had officers in, into our office. Okay, because I remember the last time that this visit happened, that the town clerk really did feel threatened. I'm not trying to overstate it or sensationalize it, but that was the report coming directly from your town. So I'm glad to hear it wasn't the same tone and tenor taken by these visitors this time around. I wonder what the number is of, let's just say, for the incorporated municipalities, the 275. I wonder how many are actually compliant, because I know there's lots who are not. Yeah, there, there's, there's lots that are, you know, there, there are some, I think there was... I think it was 100 and, 100 and something that was was uh, you know doing their monitoring. Uh, the numbers might be wrong. I think it's 170 or close to 170 that are monitoring the systems out of the 200 and so communities that's in our province. There's 300 uh, total communities. Uh, you know when it comes to uh, communities in Newfoundland and Labrador. Uh, but the problem that we're having is that you know we're spending all this money in our budget every year. Uh, you know, we know uh, that that money should be going towards fixing the problem, uh, and 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 it's not. It's just going to monitor the problem that we have, which we know uh, what uh, what influence is going into our into the ocean. Uh, every community knows that 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 are doing monitoring. Uh, so you know, this monitoring got to stop, or or we got to put that money somewhere where we can use it to you know fix the problem because. Uh, trans transitional authorization is good up to you know 2020, 2030, and 2040 uh, when your community gets that uh, gets that numbers. So you know we need to get this done so that we can move on and and save that money to uh, to put towards uh, helping with uh, fixing the problems. Yeah, I mean, to me, you know, if you do indeed monitor it, let's just pick a time frame, two weeks, you'll have a very, a really solid idea about what the status is of the effluent going into the waterways, consequently can make plans to build a treatment facility to actually deal with the root cause, as opposed to an ongoing, endless, costly monitoring system coming up with very little in the way of new data or revelation. So that makes sense to me. You yeah, know, I know, because when, when I was president of municipalities, Newfoundland and Labrador, you know, uh, I think it was back in 2018, we had an emergency meeting uh, with over 150 uh, community leaders showed up uh, to uh, to extend the uh, the time frame for us to register to get transitional authorization. Because at that time, I think there was only three communities in Newfoundland and Labrador that had that designation at that time. Uh, so, you know, it's important to understand where we're to when it comes to influence going to our ocean. But, you know, the federal government uh, has got to understand that, you know, spending this money uh, monitoring years over years is uh, is wasting money because it should be be putting aside to fix the problem that's going to cost millions and millions of dollars, uh, not only in the province but in our communities. Yeah, I mean, this is one of those hidden concerns that is going to end up costing the province. Once everybody is compliant, it's going to be 
tens or hundreds of millions of dollars for ongoing operations, not only to build facilities, but for the operations thereafter. So this is one of those hidden issues, just like what we take for granted. You turn on the tap in a community that's lucky enough to have clean, potable drinking water. But then, of course, there's there's pipes in here in this city that are 100 years old. We don't see these things until they break. We don't see these things until there's new regulations. Then, consequently, a massive big price tag that comes with it. I know some communities, like the city of Cornerbrook, has actually started a fund where they direct some of the tax dollar directly to this fund to try to get up to compliance for wastewater management and treatment. So it's a big one. Uh, what else going on in, Do- in Dover, Bob Mayor Keats? Well, you know, we, we got a lot on the go, especially when it comes to tourism. Uh, you know, when it comes to uh, employment, we have a full-time fish plant here uh, that's operated uh, year-round. Uh, our tourism numbers are way up because, and, and I, I do believe that it's because of the love story income from away, and especially now that uh, the play is going to be put off in Gander from June to September, uh, we're going to see a more of an influx of tourism coming to our community. So, so you know, we're doing things with come from away uh, to production team and uh, making sure that we can uh, uh, avail off and get in on some of that tourism dollars. Because that's a big one. Uh, I appreciate the time this morning, Mayor Keats. Anything else you'd like to say before we say goodbye? No problem, Patty. Uh, I'll try to keep in touch if anything else comes up with this wastewater uh, uh, situation. And uh, I thank you for your time. I appreciate yours. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Uh, the Mayor of Town of Dover, Tony Keats. Let's go to line number two. Conway, you're on the air. Yes. Good morning, Patty. Morning. Uh, a couple uh, issues here. Two little issues, I guess. They're, they're not little, but... Uh, first one is uh, our lobsters, and uh, it got to do with I guess the contract that the fisherman has with the union, and the contract we have with the union is to set fish prices or help set fish prices and negotiate quota. Now, if Anything has changed in that, I would like for someone to come on this radio and let me know. Because we're charged a two-cent levy on our lobsters to the union. Now, the union come down and had a couple of the meetings, and everybody last year said, no, we ain't paying no levy. We no need to pay a levy. I mean, we were not responsible for marketing our lobsters. You know, our lobsters is basically shipped off the island. And I'd say estimated around quarter million dollars the union got from all Newfoundland lobsters last year. Now, I don't have a contract with the union to pay them a living. But yet, they're telling the fish buyers that they have to take it out. And I guess my concern is, is what gives them the right to take it? So what does the union say when you ask them the obvious question? They don't say nothing. It says you can pay it. I got no contract with them. No contract with FFAW to take lobster living. Well, as a member and a dues-paying member, is there a document associated with it that you signed to become a card-carrying member of the FFAW uniform? And anywhere on there, does it spell out the specific fees you will pay, including this one on lobster? No, not for me to find that. Like I said, uh, 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 the contract that, that the fisherman has with the union is to set fish prices and negotiate quota. 
and anything besides that has to be signed. We never had a vote on a piece of paper sent out. Nothing. And if I don't get enough weeks fishing, the union sends me a bill, then the first week I goes fishing the next year, that that arrears is took out. Well, how come the union never send me a paper for the two cents levy that they took off every pound of my lobsters for me to claim on my taxes? So inside your lobster quota, how much that add up to? Just you, your own. I'm not sure. I never really sat down and done it all up, but I know there's money that's come out of my enterprise that could be well spent somewhere else. I mean, uh, where, where, where's the levy going? Where is the money going that's, that's took from the lobsters? There's no paper on that either. So they just took a load of money uh, out of a load of fishermen and we have no regard where it went. Like, I started lobster fishing this year. I'm writing up a piece of paper and I'm giving it to my buyer stating that my contract with the union is to help set fish prices and negotiate quota with the federal government. Not to pay a lobster levy. I have no contract with them. And if they want to to tell my buyer that they're going to bring him to court if he don't take it out, who's monitoring the union to, to, to let, to, for this to go on? It's absolutely ridiculous. So what's going to happen? This Last year, we got two cents took off us for every pound. So now next year, what's going to happen if they want to bump it up to five cents? Who, who's regulating it? When there was no vote, there was no piece of paper sent out to any license holder to sign to say, yes, I agree with it, or no, I do not agree. Okay, understood. So that's one issue. What's the second one you want to get to, Lobster? Uh, Conway? And the second one is our crab. And now I was reading there on Facebook this morning that uh, apparently a few people has been called and asked if they had a fish for 220 and that's absolutely ridiculous when we look across the Gulf here and uh, Quebec is apparently fi- uh, fishing for 350 and for the companies or anyone to look up and say well we, we can't pay that because we got shipping well last year in the year before the Magdalen Island boats come in over here and they bought crab from them over and above our negotiated price. And they said, well, they can do it because they don't have a, a contract with them. And then they shipped in crab from Nova Scotia to the plants. So now they can ship in crab, and then they can pay boats from another province over and above. All this stuff that they're talking about, that they're overhead for shipping out, it's absolutely ridiculous. Now, the number I was told, the Quebec landed price now was two twenty-five. Well, like I said, I, I'm just going by what I read on, on Facebook there this morning. But if two twenty-five is this is is nothing. Is is basically nothing. How can how can we go fishing for bait that's uh, just about a dollar 
fuel that's gone up to two dollars. Yep. My insurance on my boat has doubled in the last two years, and they're still crab is still selling on the market for well above. What uh, 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 we were getting ten years ago. Sure, makes it through, makes its way through a lot of hands before it gets to the end consumer. So, if it's two dollars and fifty cents a pound, are you going for it? I don't know. I really don't know. I don't know if it, I can. How can how can I put my boat in gear with a load of pots on it, knowing that at the end of the day, I'm probably getting a couple a couple grand in the hole. Like my crew might make a bit of money, but so then how's I supposed to get that back? Like I, I'm gone in the hole. What's would a break-even number? You have a company? Excuse me. What's a break-even number for you on crap? Well, we gotta have at least three fifty. It's is on. It's you. You. How can you fish without it? Like three fifty a pound is not very much when you go in the store and buy a bottle of drinks for three dollars, a five hundred or six hundred milliliter of drinks. Or a chocolate bar for two? Yeah, no, things are out of control in the store. There's no doubt about that. Um, like, okay. uh, I bought, I bought ham from from my local farmers and that. Like, boys, boys, my pig, and that, and like that's gone up. Everything's gone up. I, not, I can't go back to him and say, well, boy, uh, the economy has gone back the other way a little bit. But everything else is still gone up. But I lost money on the crab. So can you can you still sell me that? Pork for two dollars instead of three fifty. Uh, the short answer to that one is no. Uh, but I appreciate the time, Conway. I got to get, get to the break. I assume, or I'm guessing, we're going to hear a price on crab today. It'd be, it won't be Friday, and it's going to be this week. So I'm guessing it's going to be this afternoon, and I guess we'll all find out at the same time. Uh, I appreciate your time this morning. Yes, and I'd like for somebody that's supposed to be over the union to come on. This this radio station sure. and explain to me how the union can take a living when nobody signed in a piece of paper. Understood. We're happy to have that uh, conversation. I'll, I'll ask that question on your behalf. Okay. Thank you. You're welcome. Bye bye. All right. Uh, let's take a break. When we come back, Lester's there to talk about the budget. Don't go away. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number four. Lester, you're on the air. Good morning, Mr. Daly. Good morning to you. Uh, what's it been now? Three weeks plus uh, since uh, the budget's been brought down? And uh, regarding, like you say, uh, Mrs. Cody said that uh, there's supposed to be a bump up of 5% on the incentive supplement program and the seniors benefit program, which... Uh, I heard you, someone said uh, that roughly works out to $24 a year, roughly around $24 a month times four. But uh, is there any plan when uh, this is going to be issued? But it certainly wasn't on our checks today. For all, I mean, this one is a little bit maddening because, you know, 5% sounds like, well, that's a reasonable bump. But I think the numbers is actually adds up to about $72 is the math that I saw. Uh, but 72 94 I'm not sure what it is. But this was announced last November. 
So, you know, the budget, you're right, is a few weeks ago now. I guess it's three weeks ago tomorrow. But it has to make it through the House of Assembly, has to get voted and then adopted and passed, and then the money starts to flow. Now, some things in there, the money is already flowing because it was uh, uh, orders in council. But if you're telling me that's not on your check, you're going to have to wait for the budget to get voted on and passed, which it will. It's just a matter of time because, of course, the Liberals have a majority. Yeah, that's just true. Yeah, but well, like you say, it all depends on uh, on, on the amount that uh, what person's getting to. But uh, the way in my calculation, you add five percent of the income something, and then five percent a year. Your senior business it usually works at around ninety six dollars. Okay, it all depends on on the income that the person what they're getting. Yes, of course. And the number I saw was I think they quoted as on average. So if that's yeah, average, if that's yeah. your number, fair enough. Yeah, right. So I'm just wondering, like I say, uh, I suppose uh, uh, we'll get it sometime. <laughs> well, sooner than later would be good. I would imagine that, I mean, this is just a formality. There's time allotted for debate about the budget. We've seen that. And, of course, a lot of performance theater was part of that as opposed to detailed questions and answers. Now they just vote on it. And as soon as that happens, uh, away we go and the money will be released. But it's a long time to wait. Here we are now in early April talking about an announcement that happened in November and the money hasn't started the flow. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, like you say, it's no big amount, but they're going to give it, give it. Absolutely. I'm with you. Right. right. Yep. Have a nice day. That's, uh, that's my uh, comment for the day. I appreciate your time, Lester. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Take care. Bye-bye. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, and then immediately after the budget was tabled and the budget speech was delivered, the very next week was constituency week. So... <laughs> timing not great because the debate on the budget and the vote on the budget should come very close on the heels of the budget being tabled right right let's go to line number one brandon you're on the air good morning patty how are you buddy excellent my son you i'm doing good i'm good. busy at work well not now i'm talking to you now but uh patty i just wanted to call you this morning buddy, because uh, i've been listening to your show for quite some time and uh, especially being an equipment operator you know the radio's always on so you, you talk about some very important topics and and it's very educational for a fellow like myself i must say who has to have everything explained in layman terms you call it but uh but yeah it's a great show patty and, and we, we all love it out i called you this morning to talk about the ongoing issue in the town of musgrave harbor i don't know how familiar you are with the situation regarding the municipality out there but you had a caller last week uh, or the week before, caught in talking about a protest that was organized out there and everything else. But uh, he, he, he did touch on some very important topics. But, but uh, a lot of stuff, uh, Patty, people don't know about what, what's going on down in this town, okay? So when the elections were on to go last time, uh, I myself was nominated to run, so I, I, knowing nothing about politics, I thought it would be a great learning experience. And I said, you know what, that great. So I, I went in and I got elected, like I got voted in. And, and uh, a certain councillor, uh, I'm sure you know who it is by now, it was uh, was also elected in, and we had a fresh new young council. All young people willing to learn, uh, members of the community, grew up there, lived there all their life, and devoted their acts to, all right, let's change it. Because there was, no, there was no money. There was, it's just a small town. There's nothing to generate money, really, for, for the municipality and everything else. And you just go after the grants like everybody else. So we all started the young council. And, you know, we really got into it, Patty. Now, meanwhile, at the time, COVID was a big issue in the world, and it still is, I guess. But uh, So our council at the time, which I was involved in, I was on part of, we uh, came up with a policy that you had to be vaccinated 
to enter chambers. Well, I'm familiar with that story, and this made its way all the way through the courts, and the councillor has been yes. reinstated, right? Yes, exactly. Okay. No, he still hasn't shown up to the council meetings or anything like that now, which is, well, that's, that's all another story. But uh, the thing was, Patty, was that I myself at the time wasn't vaccinated. Uh, two other councillors, he was one of them, weren't, vac- weren't vaccinated. So, uh, you know, I kicked up a fuss. I was one of the people who did vote against it at the time. But, you know, after, you know, sitting down and taking it all into consideration and wanting to learn, wanting to become a part of this because I knew nothing about politics. And I said, this is great. Just I'm going to learn. I'm going to learn. And then that's it. I'm going to help it this time. And that was it. That was my attitude. And I got into it and really, really loved it, Patty. It was a great learning experience, like I said. But it all came to a quick stop. I decided to go get the vaccination to uh, comply with the rules of the council on the boy lot at the button place and everything else. So I went and got the vaccine. Uh, another councillor went and got vaxxed because she wanted to learn. She was, like myself, willing to throw it all in and become a part of the municipality. And Anyway, a lot of stuff started happening with this one certain councillor who didn't get vaccinated. He, he, he didn't he get to show any medical proof signed by a doctor uh, stating that he shouldn't get vaccinated. Now, and, and that was his excuse that he did. But anyway, it all started from that, Patty, and then the social media becomes involved, and members of the town become involved. Then there's court cases. Blah, 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 taxpayers' do- dollars, and this whole community up in Montgomery, on the Northeast Coast now, Patty, they're all in a frenzy up there. It's a mess that's not being recognized enough. I don't know when municipal affairs are going to step in and do something about it, or at least try. Like, they're... they're, they're Members of the council now that are remaining down there, and the new ones that got elected when a couple of us resigned, uh, they're all frustrated to the max. You can, you can see it in them, boy. Like it's, it's, it's ongoing, Patty. And you know our little town, we need road work. We need this. We need that. We need infrastructure fixed up. We need stuff that the town could be generating money for, but instead it's all going to legal fees. And this councillor, uh, that, that all this is over, as yet... He fought for a seat. He won a seat back. He said, okay. So they said, we stepped out of our boundaries uh, by putting this law in place. And he got back. Fair enough. Yeah. As it showed, as it showed up. As it can, uh, just, just continuously sends emails uh, demanding public apologies. And he says the court work is not over and everything else. And me being resigned and gone back to work like full time, away from home, away from the family is bad enough. I'm still today in St. Lawrence. Are dealing with this issue, you know what I mean? It causes a lot of anxiety for members of the municipality and especially town people because they don't want to see their taxpayers' dollars going in legal fees and everything else. They want to see the community getting spruced up. They want to see stuff for our young people. You know, committee work, Patty. This this councillor has not yet done any uh, structural committee work or, or council work whatsoever. It's just an ongoing fuss against every other council member now. What do you think of that, Patty? I just want to know your thoughts very quick. I don't want to keep you too long. Well, I mean, I haven't followed it really closely. I do hear people talking about it. If the councillor thought that the proper course of action was to go to the courts, he did. uh, The court said he should be reinstated. And so if that's the case and that's what he wanted, I'm not so sure why he would not attend council meetings. So is it basically until people offer a public apology, he will not attend? Is it as simple as that or am I missing something? Well, I don't know, Patty. It's just like I know that every council meeting that he doesn't show up, there's like pages and pages and pages of emails that they're getting that day. He wants this. He wants that. Uh, you know, it, it's it's very, very frustrating. You know, it, it is. You, you got to size it up. Like when I was on council, like it came to the point where 
the first few meetings were great. You was learning this, you was learning it, you were becoming aware of things that needed you needed to become aware of about the community. And then all of a sudden, your meetings switched from that to going to anxiety. And uh, you know, like he, he was public, he was uh, he was recording us. I'll tell you, he, he was recording us without our knowledge for the first few meetings. And then he came in and told us that that's what he was doing. Now, you know, I'm sure if he said, if he if he asked or or, or, or you know requested that he could email or uh, record the meetings, we would have said yes, okay, councillor, you can, or, or we'd have voted on it or some, you know. But he, without our knowledge, he went and did that, right? And he, he just continues to disagree and cause trouble. And like it's, it's every council meeting that the town of Mosgrave ever has in their building, that's what they're focusing on. More and more members of the community each week, this is true, this is facts are showing up to these meetings. Uh, the chambers are full uh, when they have the public meetings because people are becoming more and more concerned. Uh, it was a thing with the media first when it came on the go, but then it just stopped. But when it stopped is when it got worse. I, I think the media needs to become more aware of what's going on. Someone needs to reach out and. I hope somebody from Municipal Affairs is listening this morning anyway, because I'm sure you're going to hear the frustration in the voice, right? Uh, absolutely. And I think you make a fair point. I don't know what where the councillor's mind is on this one and what would be the... The incentive for him to return and do the work he was elected to do, I have no earthly idea. But, you know, I hear stories about whether it be dysfunctional councils or conflict of interest concerns or this and that. And I mean, there's something going on down in Portugal Cove, St. Phillips. I don't know how often people would like me to dig into the municipal issues and the personality conflicts and court challenges. But when people bring the stories to me, I'm happy to chase them. That much is for absolutely sure. Because I hear stories about spats and councils all the time. Some of them are real, some of them are big, some of them are petty, some of them are kind of really nothing. But this one obviously has seen how it made its way through the courts, and there was a resolution, but it hasn't seen the councillor return. I don't know, but I'll see what I can figure out and find out. Municipal Affairs or MNL, they should have positions on this about, you know, especially when some councils, I remember one, I'll leave the community out of it. A couple of years ago, there was conflict of interest concerns. And consequently, when the personality conflict became so large, that the councillors weren't returning to chambers, they didn't have a quorum. They couldn't do anything. Their hands were tied because people were mad at each other. I mean, exactly. There's a, it's a rough trade sometimes. Now, thankfully, municipal politics isn't quite as, I'll use the word bad, as different levels of politics. But, you know, just because people are emotional or get crooked with one each other, and it just happened out in Quarterbook last week, sure, between uh, Councillor Pender and uh, Mayor Parsons. You know, we've got to be able to ensure that the councillors are able to do their work. If there's a legitimate debate and argument about codes of conduct or vaccines or whatever else people want to talk about, at some point people have to shelve their emotions and do their job. Exactly, Patty. Exactly. And if certain councillors, you know, like if if the work was there, the, the actual council work that the, that the town needed was there and was being put for it every day, then, you know, you'd look past all the foolishness. But all the time is being put into is this ongoing nonsense. And you know it's what it is, Patty, when the social media now gets involved and everything else and people hear their dirty laundry and stuff online. Yes, you might think this. I might think there's no need of it, but really that's the way of the world. Now you got to accept it. Yeah, social media, you know, it really started off as being really quite helpful and it proves that it's not really at all. I appreciate the time this morning, Brandon. Thanks for tuning in and thanks for calling the show. No problem, Patty. First time caller, buddy. I love your show. Keep up the good work, man. We'll be talking to you sometime soon, hopefully. I look forward to it. Thanks a lot. All right, buddy. We'll see you. Bye-bye. All right, let's take a break. When we come back, it's Miles for Smiles. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Good morning, Connie. You're on the air. 
hi, Patty. How are you doing this morning? I'm very well, thank you. How are you? Good, good. Not too bad. Right. I certainly appreciate uh, that gentleman's call before me there, the man from Musgrave Harbor, mm-hmm. <clears throat> and talking about social media and su- such. Anyways, yes, it certainly has its pros and cons, that's for sure. Um, I wondered if I might be able to make a request this morning to uh, announce that Miles for Smiles, along with ASCA, um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with that acronym, but our fearless leader, of course, Bev Moore Davis, mm-hmm. with Miles for Smiles, she started a group here in 2011, and uh, it's basically for adult survivors of child abuse, and Bev is a trained facilitator, does a great job. Anyway, the the whole group, uh, Miles for Smiles, um, were trying to help a young woman. She's 23 years of age. Uh, she was sex trafficked by her dad when she was a young child. And um, she has a support dog, but we're hoping to help gain enough funds um, through the organization there to help her uh, basically acquire the dog outright. So uh, there's going to be a fundraiser on uh, Saturday, the 8th, uh, from 10 until 1 p.m. at uh, Frontline Action on Brookfield Road. I think a lot of people know where that is. And uh, people have to register in advance. But there's unlimited access for the children to the Bouncy Castle, the Laser Tag, the Zorb Balls. The Easter Bunny is going to be there. So it should be uh, a really good three hours for a lot of children in the area. I'm hoping that a lot of people will come out and support this young woman. Uh, She's uh, a very smart person and she wants to attend college and get a degree and help other people and very, very um, encouraged by her, I guess, her commitment to move forward. What additional supports are you trying to fundraise for? You know, I I think you said she has a support dog. What else are you trying to accomplish? Well, we want to help her pay for this support dog because, you know, she's been so traumatized since she was a child. Uh, This is definitely a need for her, and uh, that's our main focus right now. There are other things behind the scenes that uh, we're doing to help her, but uh, the main focus right now is getting that dog paid for. So hopefully people who are willing and able to get to the fundraiser can contribute. So that's the type of supports and the advocacy work that you would do at Miles for Smiles, you, Bev, and others. But, of course, inside of this, and this, I know Bev has a strict focus on this as well. Well, I know strict focus. She also has a keen focus on this, is prevention. Because well, that's her main focus, yes. Okay, I, I didn't want to characterize it because I, I don't want to speak for Bev. But in the world of prevention and some of the numbers that we see and we hear, like one in ten children in the country will indeed be victimized before they turn. I think the, the number they use is 18 years of age. The fact that 90% or thereabouts of children who are victims of sexual abuse actually know their abusers, about 60 or 70 percent or perpetrator was someone that the family trusted so while we talk prevention we also have to talk about the little red alarms going off in our belly that something is wrong and being aware of looking for the signs actively not being paranoid that at every turn every uncle is going to do something dastardly but to understand what's going on in the world to recognize these facts to acknowledge them to see the signs that could be a tip-off because it's right there inside your family unit or inside your very tight social circle 
circle where you're at the most risk. So that's those are startling numbers. They're almost painful to say them out loud, but we have to be realistic. Well, it's true, uh, and we have to operate in our reality as it is right now. We can't uh, play ostrich and bury our heads in the sand and say, oh, that wouldn't happen here and all that stuff. There's a very high rate, actually, of child trafficking in Nova Scotia, of all places, um, in a 10-year period from 2011, uh, oddly enough, the year Bev started ASCA, to 2021, there were almost 36 incidents across the country reported to police. Now, again, that's a highly underreported type of crime. But 62% of all those cases were in Ontario and 10% were in Nova Scotia, which is a really high number given that they only make up 3% of Canada's population. So, you know, that's a worrisome thing, and it has to do with border crossings and, you know, all kinds of things. But um, when you talk about prevention, again, and knowing and understanding, yes, we hope it never happens, but you have to be attuned to the fact that it may and it does and not be blind to it and young people to be made aware like of keeping their social media settings and their privacy settings and everything keeping them safe you know having that little alarm bell or that feeling in your gut as you mentioned you know if somebody sends them a, a very unusual friend request uh, young people have a tendency sometimes you know innocently to overshare on social media and uh, all of these things they add up you know they they see an ad and it might be too good to be true but their innocence kind of takes them down a rabbit hole and then sure. they're in trouble yeah you know? and, and that you know, happens with all kinds of things we want our children to feel a sense of independence and that we're not looking over their shoulder 24 7 right. but of course we're better equipped to recognize the dangers that look around especially the digital corners and you mentioned nova scotia we i think we had her on the show maybe i'm dreaming but i certainly read a story a lady who's originally from this province and she's the director of victim services in the durham region of ontario uh, seeing mm -hmm. more and more Newfoundlanders come through her doors requiring her services and that's only the people that they can find so we know that's only the tip of the spear uh, very quickly Connie last words to you maybe the where the winds for this fundraiser before I go to the newscast okay so it's Saturday at uh, 10 to 1 uh, that's April the 8th right in between Good Friday and Easter Sunday and uh, it's at Frontline Action off Brookfield Road uh, Pearl Place actually that's Right. And if anybody wanted to swing by there, you know, and just drop a toonie or a loony in the bin that there there will be in place, that's fine too. But uh, you have to register in advance, and like I said, the kids will have a fun time, bouncy castle, laser tag, all the things they have there uh, with the Easter Bunny. And, uh, yeah, so they'll have lots of access to that, unlimited access, and it should be a good three hours, and we hope to be able to purchase this service dog for this young woman. Appreciate your time, Connie. Thank you. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Okay, bye. Connie Pike talking miles for smiles and your support is needed. Let's take a break for the news. When we come back, tons of time to speak with you. Do not go away. Join Brian Medore weekdays at noon for a comprehensive update on news from every corner on all levels. Newsmakers, weather, and more. Join us on your VOCM at noon. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Leonard, you're on the air. Hi, uh, Patty. Good morning. Good morning. 
Uh, just a word of caution to anyone traveling out in the CBS area. It's pretty uh, blustery out here right now. Uh, you guys just reported that it's one degrees and sunny in St. John's. But <laughs> not the same out here, my friend. Usually we got the better weather than you guys in town, but not right now. I, I tell you what, I looked out the window at about five minutes to 11, and it was still sunny and clear. Then I looked out just as Noah started the newscast, and it's snowing sideways. So it's happening here, too. Yeah, okay. Well, like I said, just a word of uh, caution anyone traveling gets to. Uh, take your time or stay home to this uh, are we expecting any snow patty do you know or what this came out of nowhere for me i didn't know if there was any snow in the forecast today to be honest okay meanwhile well, i got you on the phone now because i want to don't want to waste this call now just talking about the weather but uh what is your take on heat pumps or mini splits i'm planning on uh investing into one or the other what are the pros and cons of only one i i, mean, I don't know you got one uh What's your take on it, my friend? The, we have a mini split, and uh, I think it's been a great addition to the house. It absolutely has saved us some money. I'm estimating my cost recovery, because there's not front cost. I'm estimating my cost recovery will be in the neighborhood of three and a half years at the maximum. Uh, the greatest feature of it for me is not only the, the ability for that the, to heat the main living area, you know, the kitchen and the living room area, which is very efficient and effective, but what I enjoy about it the most is on the hot, sultry summer days, you can actually put on a dry feature, which really cools the room off quite nicely, so I'm more than pleased with mine. Yeah, we definitely need that now that the climate's starting to heat up, right? Especially the uh, last few summers while it was unbearable to be in the house, right? Well, I feel the same way, so I can I give the thumbs up. And of course, people have different configurations of their house, and maybe like we have a fairly large living area. Now, I, I live in a very modest eleven or twelve hundred square foot bungalow, so when I say large, take that with a grain of salt. But it really is effective, and we love ours. Yes, okay. Now, Patty, uh, is there there must be about a dozen different outfits out there. Is there either one better than the other? What would you recommend, or what's the warranty and say in the parts and labor with these uh outfits uh, is there one better than the other one and say for instance uh once the boom is over a lot of these companies are going to fold up their tents and go out and, uh, and do something else uh so we got to factor in that as well i guess uh who we're purchasing it off well, I think there's a bunch of now. It's not for me to promote one or the other, like home heat, home heat, uh, heat pump solutions or cold air contracting or those types. But you know, the companies that have a diversified offering are probably going to be in the, for the long haul. Plus, they tell us that they've only really uh, chipped away at the surface of the demand that's coming for uh, whether it be mini splits or heat pumps or what have you. They are becoming more and more popular. These businesses are ramping up. So I think those questions are probably best for one. You know, go get some c consumer reviews and see about the established history of a company. And if they have a very diversified offering, they're very much likely, much more likely to be in business for the long haul. So I don't really, nor should I really promote one or the other, but there's a few notables out there that have excellent reputations. And you can, you know, get a consumer review of whether or not it's one product or another, one manufacturer or another that people recommend at the highest uh, order. But those couple come to mind. Yes, okay. Now, those government rebates that the federal government are offering, uh, Basically, how does that work? Uh, do you, uh, as a consumer, pay up front and then get reimbursed afterwards? Yeah, are you talking about the Greener Home Rebate or the Greener Home Grant? Yeah, yeah. yeah either one, either one, Patty. Yeah, well, you get an interest-free loan through the uh, Greener Home Grant. There's eligibility issues that you have to uh, uh, factor in, but you can get an interest-free loan up to 40000 bucks and take 10 years to repay. So it all depends on what you're doing, 
how you qualify, whether or not you're eligible. So there's lots of easy information to get on that one. If you just Google up uh, Canada Greener Homes Grant, you'll go right down through the eligibility list, the retrofits that are on that list. So it seems to be working for people, though. They seem to have a little bit of trouble with the bureaucracy and getting it dealt with and the, uh, the upfront inspection that has to be done so that you hit all and you check all the boxes. But, yeah, I think it's probably uh, – there's a lot of different pots of money out there to help green your home and improve your energy efficiency, so that's one. Yeah, Patty, in closing, uh, I was up to mom's there uh, during the winter when we had that cold snap, right? Yep. Uh, of course, uh, they're, they're, you know, they're uh, seniors, and uh, basically their light bill was the same as mine back in February. I know we had about two weeks of that polar vortex uh, uh, air that was made it really chilly. Uh, their light bill, like I said, I thought these uh, units were, uh, I guess they don't work uh, so well because my stepdad told me that he had to have the heat on as well with, with electric heat with that uh, pumps. Is that uh that's the only time you would need those on, the heat on with those uh, pumps? Well, I mean, at the very coldest conditions, there are some issues surrounding, you know, what temperature they're most effective at. But, you know, I would think, and this is the recommendations coming from people who I spoke to before we even got the mini splitters, the number one thing you can do to keep your home more heat efficient is to upgrade the insulation and the windows and those basics that we all know that we all know that the potential problems because the coldest days are one thing but it's the cold windy days are the biggest problem so between your insulation and the uh, gaps under doors inside and outside doors that those are the things if you tend to those first then you'll get a much bigger uh, bang for your buck when you go ahead and do whatever mini uh, mini split or heat pump or whatever else under the sun so yeah yeah. Okay. Well, sounds like great advice, Patty. You should. Have, you guys should have somebody on sometime and uh, and ask those pr- uh, pertinent questions, right? So that way, uh, you know, it's a better idea of uh, what to look for and what to uh, have an idea of what to purchase, right? Yeah, I'm happy to do that. It's probably best if we get someone who's not running or owning one company representing one product because of course their agenda would be clear and it's not a bad thing because they'd want to sell their product but yeah we'll get a guest sign who can talk about the ups the downs the pros the cons of either of those units uh, appreciate the time running Leonard. thanks for the weather heads up and now quick is that i looked out the window snow stopped <laughs> yeah, no it's still snowing out here buddy but it's not okay. so bad so maybe right it's just one of those squalls right i guess it was appreciate the time Okay, have a great day, sir. You too. All the best, Leonard. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, let's take a break. When we come back, there's a story in the news regarding statute of limitation regarding folks who have been the victims of physical abuse. Uh, longtime abuse litigator and local lawyer, Lynn Moore, she's up after this. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Good morning, Lynn Moore. You're on the air. Hi, Patty. How are you? Very well this morning, thank you. How about you? I'm good, thanks. Patty, I was calling because I just wanted to, I wanted to get your take and see maybe some of your callers, um, your listeners' takes on on the Limitations Act because sometimes I feel like I'm I'm possibly in an echo chamber. Um, so just to give you the background, my client and his sister came to us um, describing horrific childhood abuse. And his sister was sexually assaulted as a child and physically assaulted. And uh, John Doe, the brother, was um, physically assaulted in, you know, a horrendous way. Uh, We're not talking spanking or the strap. You know, we're talking firearms, broken bones, a very high level of abuse. And uh, the government, um, because the legislation changed in the early 90s and there is no time limits on sexual abuse, the government 
settled um, with the, the sister, but the brother's case is outstanding, and the Limitations Act says that you have to sue within two years of becoming an adult or within 10 years of discovering the source of your problems, or if you're under a disability, if you come out of that disability within 30 years, that's the final barrier. My client missed all of those. Uh, it was only when he was in counseling in 2015 that he came to realize his present day reactions to loud noises and his anxiety and his sometimes depression that these were all connected back to his childhood trauma uh, when he was in counseling and then um, his counselor actually recommended that he contact us and um, and begin his lawsuit so we're arguing that the limitations act violates the charter of rights and freedoms because it discriminates against him on the basis of his mental disability this disability being you know the trauma reaction to the abuse um, meant that he was really not able to understand his childhood trauma how it connected to the day and figure out that he should uh, bring a suit and so my question is, is like, I, to me, it just seems totally unfair that the government is hiding behind this technicality. They've admitting, they've admitted that that they knew that this was going on, that they had a duty to act to protect him, that they didn't act, and that you know he suffered as a result. And I guess my question is, like, what do you think? Well, it just, in summary, sounds like uh, this person has been, de been denied justice. So if the benchmark that government is going to use is to uh, acknowledge the duty to care, acknowledge that the abuse happened, then there should be no statute of limitations because the province assumes a massive responsibility on this front. So to have something like this in place, for starters, or uh, in addition to that, there's only two provinces in the country that have a statute of limitations on physical abuse. Us, and I believe it might be New Brunswick. You can correct me if I'm wrong. So, obviously, the other provinces have come to the reality that this is unfair because traumatic experiences may take a long time to manifest themselves and for people to even be self-aware enough to say that they were the victim. So, how can we possibly have this statute in place? So, I, I think that what you said is... If as a child you come forward within two years of the abuse, or after you turn 19, two years after thereafter you have to come forward. But there are pretty tight timelines when we talk about the big scheme of things in physical and uh, psychological reactions, the things that people want to bury. I mean, that's the last, people, the, the last thing people want to do is to live the horrors over and over. We do everything we can to suppress these issues. So I don't know why this exists. It doesn't make any sense, and I think that the other uh, eight provinces agree with you and me. Yeah, I, I think you're right. One of the, uh, he, he, my client has been uh, diagnosed with PTSD, and one of the features of PTSD is avoiding the thing that makes you panic. You know, like you don't want to think about the trauma, you avoid it. So, it, you know, it really is a case that he, the harm that was done to him caused the delay, and now they're using that harm as a, a defense. It just seems to me to be so unfair and uh you know I, d I don't know what other folks think of it but you're right the rest of the country except new brunswick um has a allowed people in our clients circumstances to to move forward with this type of claim and uh, i was really grateful that it was um, brought up in in the house uh yesterday and uh, the minister of justice and public safety said that he is considering it but i was i was hoping for for more of a commitment than that yeah, brought forward by the justice critic uh, Helen Conway-Ottenheimer. You know, I don't know really how to say this, so I'll tread very lightly. To make the, the distinction between sexual and physical abuse 
is try to separate things which have distinct overlaps overlaps on the impact to the person. So we know sexual assault, sexual abuse of minors in particular is horrendous. It's evil, it's criminal, and needs to be uh, acknowledged as such. But when we reduce physical abuse to, well, it only has X amount of impact when compared to sexual abuse, really undermines the real-life impacts that it has on one person or another. So I don't know how they've even gone through a thought process to say, well, physical abuse is maybe not that bad. It can be just as bad. And again, I'm, I don't want to overstep here or try to make mountains out of molehill or maybe the exact opposite of that, but the physical abuse can be horrendous. It can have very similar, if not the exact same, uh, impact on a person's psyche and their long-term emotional well-being. So I don't know how they've even made that distinction. I'd love for someone to walk me through that. I would as well. Um, you know, I, I, I think that the um, trauma is trauma, and if you're unable to act because of trauma, um, the, the source of that trauma is really um, not, not germane to whether or not you should be allowed to pursue a, a claim for compensation. You know, one of the sad things that my client said when he was talking about this was the first incident he remembered was that dad came home and we scattered, we being his brothers and sisters. And I said, well, that was the, the was that the first instance? If you, if you ran away when he came home, you know, um, maybe something had happened before that. And he said, no, no, this was the first instance, but that's what we did. When dad came home, we hid. So that was childhood for our client, you know, that 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 life is 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 you protect yourself at the age of seven by running and hiding when dad comes home and uh, it's just so tragic and this gentleman is such a lovely individual despite these circumstances and he really feels that this is an affront to his dignity as a person that that he doesn't matter was there any uh, any criminal charges or convictions yes yeah, he, the father was convicted of um, beating his head into the floor until he broke his nose. So just so people understand what the provincial implication would be, where does the province come in here for knowing that inside a family unit this atrocious behavior was taking place? And how do they assume any responsibility for compensation or otherwise? Just spell that out to the listener. Well, you know, our the, our case originally was built on the fact that they knew it was going on, and the, the child welfare legislation said that they had a duty to apprehend children that they knew were at risk. Mm-hmm. So we were saying you had this legislative duty, you had this knowledge, you didn't do it, and they came to court and said, yes, we did. We had the duty. We knew it happened. We didn't act. So they they've admitted all that, and they're hiding behind this technicality that it wasn't brought in time. It's, it has nothing to do with the merits of the case. It has only to do with the fact that he was traumatized and couldn't bring his claim uh, beforehand. That's that's our position, that he couldn't bring his claim beforehand. He was able to do lots of other things. He was able to file his taxes. You know, he was able to um, to work. But it, it, with regard to this abuse, uh, he, he avoided thinking about it. He avoided dealing with it until one day he was at work and there was a loud noise and he had an advanced startle response and he almost fell off a ladder. And he said, you know, I, I've got to do something about this, right? Like this is not normal. And he went to his counselor and she helped him thread the needle about how this connected back to his childhood. So are statutes of limitations important in the justice system? Because I know civil versus criminal has all kinds of different moving parts and rules and regulations, but why are they in place in the first place as opposed to whether or not a case has merit, a charge can be investigated and proven in the court of law, whether that be civil or criminal? 
Well, they're there to give finality, uh, I think, but generally speaking, they benefit people with wealth and power, and they act against uh, people who are disadvantaged. But the, the rationale in the case law uh, for the Limitations Act is that, you know, people should be allowed to, defendants should be allowed to move on with their lives without worrying that something might crop up. And then in the early 90s, after the tragedy of Mount Cashel became public in this province, um, the government changed that legislation and said there is no barrier for sexual abuse. Um, but that was at a time when our understanding of trauma was very different than it is today. And we now know that uh, the source of the trauma doesn't necessarily affect your ability to bring forward uh, claims. You know, it's, if you're traumatized, you're traumatized. And whether that was a sexual uh, assault that traumatized you or a physical assault or years of abuse in our client's case, um, you know, it's, it's neither here nor there. I appreciate your time this morning, Lynn. Anything else before we say goodbye? Thank you very much. Appreciate yours. Bye-bye. Okay, bye. Bye-bye. Lynn Moore, abuse litigator. The fair questions to be asked because the merits are not being questioned. The merits of the case aren't being questioned. The promise has admitted the duty to care and knowing that this happened, but yet falling behind this, as Miss Moore refers to as a technicality. Your thoughts are welcomed on that or anything else right after the news. Don't go away. Weekday mornings from 5.30 to 9. Jumpstart your day with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy. Newsmakers, traffic, weather, and more during your VOCM morning show. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number three. Jerry, you're on the air. Good morning, uh, Patty. I'm calling uh, regarding a couple of uh, phone callers ahead. Uh, one guy was talking to you about uh, heat pumps. Another guy was talking to you about the education how we find listening to VOCM is very educational. <laughs> Good. And I'm, I'm calling for that exact reason. So what I'm calling about regarding is the Greener Homes Program that's being offered by the federal government and the very popular heat pumps that we as homeowners are installing. And the comments that you had made to the, to the caller regarding the efficiency of the heat pump and how on the colder days he had his heat bill or his electricity cost for his uh, parents were up, but then they had to turn up his heat pump a bit. And your comments then went from the heat pump to talking about the envelope of the home, which is so correct. So us as homeowners, yes, we're installing super efficient heat sources to help us cut down on our heating costs. But if the home doesn't match or the envelope of the home doesn't match the efficiency of the heat pump, well, of course, we're not going to get the desired results. And where does that start with? It starts with the insulation levels or the air values. How much resistance does the hot or cold have from entering or exiting our home? Then the next part of the equation is air leakage or draft. How much draft is entering our houses? And then the last part of the question, of course, or the equation is going to be the heat source. So as we install those super efficient heat sources and see our electricity bills come down, there are going to be times throughout the year especially in the cold times, that we're going to see our electricity costs come up. And that's the, that's the reason for the Greener Homes Program, it's to be used as a roadmap of how we can become more energy efficient and, of course, get rebates from the federal government up to $5,600 towards the cost of this program. Yeah, because the grants are up to $5,000, and then there's another $600 as a maximum contribution to Energide evaluations. Yeah. Correct, yes. Yeah. So I want to say thank you because you've done uh, a great educational part for pretty much all heat pump companies in the province because they have had re or they have received calls 
during the cold periods about the efficiencies of their heat pumps. Are they working correctly or is there something wrong? But then the other part, you've educated us as homeowners. So now that we have the heat source in and it's super efficient, and we're seeing that on colder days, we got to make that unit, we're going to turn it up. We're going to turn the heat up to a little bit higher. And of course, as we turn the heat up, we're going to see an increase of our energy consumption. And then we should be looking at other areas from that evaluation report that we can improve on. And I appreciate the kind words, Terry, and I was basically relaying information that came to me from someone who knows. <laughs> so uh, I learned it from someone, and I'm absolutely sure they're right because it just makes sense. If your insulation doors, windows, and all the draft prevention is not attended to first, you won't get the cost. Of, you won't get the cost uh, return that I'm going to achieve in the home because before we did it, we upgraded our insulation, our windows, and our doors. So it just all makes sense when someone spells it out for you on that front and there's lots of little different pots of money out there that people should be made aware of so they can take advantage of them if they hit the eligibility requirements so uh, hopefully that information worked for somebody here's a real giveaway is especially in the winter if you have a whatever type of snowfall and you look around your neighborhood and see well the snow's still on that person's roof but there's none on that person's roof you know full well that's an insulation issue, right? Because the heat's escaping through the roof and melting the snow. So even just a quick look around your own property to see that, oh, wait now, I've got this huge bare patch on the back of my home when the front of it is covered with snow, my neighbors are covered with snow, the house down the street is bare, there's an insulation problem. You are so right. And not just the roof. The roof is easy to see. That's right. Our, if we're going to be looking at our own homes, another spot now to also be looking is around the foundation. Go around and look at the, the sure. perimeter of your house, and you will see that the snow is going to be melting away from your foundation first. And then that is an indication sometimes of lower R values within the basement area. So the minimum R value now, of course, that we'd love to see in basements is an R18, and in our attic is R50. Um, and you're allowed to, to double and sometimes even triple dip to receive rebates to increase your energy efficiency. And just like uh, the Greener Homes Program, um, it's not meant to become energy efficient as a homeowner. It's not meant to be financially crippling. So the federal government has offered that interest-free loan of up to $40,000 that you, and you're still eligible for all rebates from Take Charge, from the Greener Homes Program, and sometimes we have our mortgage lenders for mortgage insurance. They're also on board offering rebates that homeowners who have purchased their home within the last two years and have become more energy efficient there's this money out there, and the term that was given to me many um, months ago was there's a pot of money out there that Newfoundland is not using. And when we educate the public, and just like you did, and I can't thank you enough, about becoming energy efficient, and then, yes, and about financially making it, um, just making it work for us as homeowners. Uh, there's lots of stackable money out there. You know, just because you got one bit of cash doesn't mean that you're not eligible for tons more grants, rebates, interest-free loans, and what have you. So really appreciate the input and the conversation, Jerry. Thanks for the call. And thank you, Patty, for education as well. Thanks a lot for this. Take care. Bye-bye. All right. Uh, in reaction to a call we had from Irene earlier about her grandchild and the inability after the family doctor said, I think the child may be on the spectrum. And that was at the age of 16 months, two and a half now, and still no appointment in sight to get a, uh, an official diagnosis. Join us on line number one is the CEO of the Autism Society of Newfoundland and Labrador. That's Paul Walsh. Good morning, Paul. You're on the air. Good morning, sir. How are you today? Excellent today. Thank you. How about you? Very good. Thanks. Help us understand what's going on here. So, number one, how many of these required specialists are actually in the province to provide that final diagnosis? 
So let's talk about publicly provided and privately provided. Right. So the diagnosis is done by a psychologist, psychiatrist. I don't have exact numbers of what's employed at the at the. Uh, I was going to say Eastern Health, or I know it's now all one. I can't think of the name off the top of my head, but um, um, there aren't a lot. Uh, current numbers that we get from Eastern Health, at least, is that the wait time is 24 to 30 months for children. And it's one thing if you have private insurance and you can, you know, go to Halifax like a family that I well, know did. We, we can we can do it privately locally here. Oh, yeah, I know, but this family was able to get in, I think, in, within a couple of weeks in Halifax, oh, and they yeah. said, well, I'm going. Yeah, and, well, you can probably get it with a couple of weeks privately here, but you're talking $2,500, $3,000. Right. What's the real-life implication of that lag between the suspicion that the child might be on the spectrum and getting an official diagnosis and consequently referral to speech therapists and other professionals? What are the real-life implications? Well, I think what you just said is it's getting the referrals. So what's happening because people aren't um, aren't getting timely diagnosis is that there's a lot of self, uh, you know, self-identifying saying, you know, I know I'm autistic, I don't have a piece of paper to prove it, but that doesn't cut it when it comes to getting particular services from the provincial government, for example, through the health authority. So you, you know, the real-life implications are you're not getting access to those services. Once the diagnosis happens, you will get access to those services. And, you know, not necessarily that uh, there'll be anything wrong if in terms of, oh, I've lost a, a year or something like that. At least you're getting the services. Um, but obviously, you know, the diagnosis is important more so that we understand the fact that, so this is why things are happening. So true, especially in adults, Patty. You know, a lot more adult diagnosis now, and there's really no one doing adult diagnosis in the public system. Uh, it's answering questions for people of why certain things are happening. And when we know that uh, we have a, a disability and we know that that disability is part of our identity, it, it, it adjusts how we understand how things are going and we can can work more positively. So I think that's the biggest thing is losing out on, the, on knowing that diagnosis and not it just being a self-declared diagnosis. I'm not entirely sure what the issue is with access to a speech therapist without a formal diagnosis. For instance, if I have a child who has or is developing a stutter, I'd be able to get an appointment with a speech therapist. So what's the hesitancy for someone who's already just waiting for their final diagnosis from a psychiatrist or a psychologist to get ahead of things? And if you're concerned with the uh, nonverbal uh, child, whether it be on a spectrum or otherwise, you can get some help or a stutter or anything else. Why can't we just do that? Um, that's a great question, um, and I think that and it's something that we advocate for. The, the, the presence of a diagnosis triggers a whole lot of access to these things, so in terms of getting, getting in the queue, basically. Um, perhaps your, your access is going to be a little bit more expedited. Uh, you still may have the, the ability to access speech language, think speech language therapy, or, um, or, or other therapies, occupational therapy, also incredibly uh, uh, useful treatments. But the diagnosis sort of puts you right in, so that you're 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 guaranteed to, or more than I don't know, guaranteed is probably not the right word, but you're more than likely to get, be able to access the system as a child. Um, not as an adult, unfortunately, but as a child, uh, the um, you can still access, try and access it, and we certainly do a lot of advocacy for individuals around that with the health authority and with the Department of Health uh, about ensuring that people who are just waiting for that diagnosis get access. But it's the system is set up so that the diagnosis comes first. 
Uh, yesterday, I'm pretty sure it was yesterday, we were wearing our sunglasses to be cool for autism. What were some of the key messages that we were trying to spread? Thank you for asking that question, first of all. And we're trying to encourage the whole uh, Be Cool for Autism throughout the month of April. Um, so it, it's a campaign, as you're well aware, that people take selfies with sunglasses on and with the hashtag Be, too, be Cool for Autism on social media. It's awareness. It's an understanding. If you look on our website at asnl.ca, we have developed uh, – um, the, the autism community has helped us develop a new definition of autism that really gives an appreciation for that that autism is just part of the natural diversity of 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 the of life awareness of the fact that autism is that that it's a normal part of that diversity a normal part of evolution and that the understanding of autism and all disabilities in society makes us stronger through the diversity is what the campaign is about. So it's society understanding that whatever norm may have been created sometime in the past isn't real. It's about embracing everyone and, in our case, embracing autistics. And the spectrum is so broad. I think I used to hear people use this phrase that when you've met one person with autism, you've done exactly that. You've met one person with autism because where you are on the spectrum is extremely broad and very diverse. And so having an understanding about what autism means really does have to involve understanding the, the broad nature of the spectrum itself. Without a doubt, um, the, there's a current paradigm shift around thinking around autism too, and um, um, that phrase is true. But at the same time, it's also there's a, there's a website uh, that uses the expression: if you know one person with autism, there are other autistics that would like to meet them and have things in common with them. Fair. And uh, that's why we we encourage this past weekend we had an incredible gathering here of well over a hundred people. Um, uh, that and I. I'm stuck now. This is a wonderful parent group that uh, that actually had an interview on VOCM last week. That uh, uh, exceptional uh, exceptional connections. It's called. This came to my head, and we partnered with them to do that that process and just the interaction of everyone, um, autistic and non-autistic, was fantastic. And that that's the the kind of awareness we're trying to build in society and as we as people interact with each other and the things we have in common, not the things that we uh, that set us apart. Fair enough, Paul. I really appreciate your time. Would you like to say anything else before we say goodbye? I uh, just want to thank, uh, thank you for the opportunity. I will re- if your caller, if, if you have con- uh, the, any callers in that, please send them our way. We'd, help, we'd be happy to, uh, to chat with them. And, uh, you know, if we can do some advocacy or some other work with their families, we're, that's why we're here. And that's, that's the, the help we can provide. I generally do point them in your direction, absolutely. I appreciate that, sir. It's always great to talk to you. My pleasure, Paul. Take care. Take care. Right, Bye. Paul Walsh is the uh, CEO of the Autism Society. Final break of the morning. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Uh, let's go. Line number five, say good morning to the independent member of the House of Assembly, elected in and serving the folks of Humber Bay of Islands. That's Eddie Joyce. Eddie, you're on the air. Thank you, Penny, again for taking my call. Happy to do it. Before we get into whatever you want to talk about, how are you going to vote on the budget? Um, the budget is it's, uh, a lot of good things in the budget, and, uh, and you just wait and see how it um, balances out. But there are, there are a lot of good things in the budget. There's always ways that you can people can say, and anybody can say, well, you should have did this or that. But there are uh, good things in the budget that uh, we're debating now. So um, I, I definitely can't say that it's a bad budget. It wouldn't be a budget that you would bring the government down on. So I'm just waiting to get the details worked out for some of the programs. Once they announce it, see how they're going to uh, flow through with the funding for, for 
the projects that they're talking about. Give us an example of one uh, program or policy that you need more detail on. Uh, for example, when you say there's uh, $384 million for the um, hospital in Cornerbrook, will the hospital be opening soon? Uh, are they starting to, to look at for the um, for the radiation treatment uh, in Cornerbrook? They're, they're the kind of things, just because you announced the funding and the keys are supposed to be turned over, I think, this year, this October, uh, will the radiation be up and running? Are they in the, are they in the uh, process of uh, recruiting uh, for the Cornerbrook area? Are they in the process of buying the equipment out of their funds. So that's the kind of things that, and I brought that up in the House for Assembly yesterday in one of the uh, speeches that I had yesterday. So they're the kind of things that you got to um, you got to dig into. Uh, but but a lot of good things in the budget, uh, and uh, I'm looking at a lot of the good things, and this is why I was calling this morning a, a thing that was uh, put into the budget about the cataracts. Yep. Um, there are 500 new cataract surgeries being going to be performed in uh, the Western Newfoundland this year. Uh, that is great news, um, and i got to thank you, Patty, for giving me the opportunity on many occasions to, to bring up the need of it. Uh, that will allow now 500 uh, new seniors, mainly seniors, uh, who are waiting for surgery, who wouldn't be able to start getting it done until 2024, will be done this year. And the better news about that is, is, is that because of the demographics uh, and part of the agreement uh, with the Newfoundland Labrador Medical Association and the um, private clinics, uh, is that the, um, every year there's an increase because of demographics and the aging population. And um, there's negotiations as we speak <clears throat> ongoing with the um, Department of Health and Community Services with the Newfoundland and Labrador Medical Association to make this on an ongoing basis to cover off uh, all the um, all the demographics that may need it in the future. And if that happens, which I'm very confident and hopefully it will, uh, there should be never a wait list on Western Newfoundland again with the cataract surgeries. So I'm very pleased with the budget, um, uh, with that decision. It, it wasn't put out there a lot in the budget, but digging into it uh, and knowing uh, information that was passed on. So people who had to wait till April 2024 to get surgeries can't get a lot of them done now this year. Uh, that's just great news. Uh, it's positive news. Tom Osborne, we had many discussions, sometimes very frank discussions on this. Uh, he listened and it's done. So I'm, I'm very, very happy for the uh, for the people who are going to benefit. Uh, this will give a lot of seniors now back to driver's license, back to way of life that will give them more dignity back. They, they would ensure now that they can live in their own homes. And uh, so, so this is just uh, one that, as I said earlier, there's a lot of good things in the budget. This is one of the good things that was in the budget that uh, that is beneficial to the people of, of Western Newfoundland. And I'm just glad that it's done. Me too, because if we had the human resources on the medical side to do more and more cataract surgeries, it was always confusing to me why we were restricting them from doing them. Yeah, and you know, Same thing with virtual care and all that stuff. Caps are for what purpose? I'm not even sure what we're achieving by any of these caps. I'm glad it's gone away with the cataract surgery issue, but uh, one thing that I'd like to have a bit more detail on in the budget is the consolidation of 60, uh, 60 ambulance contracts. What does that even look like? You know, fewer ambulances, fewer paramedics. How's that going to deal with red flags and all these things? I'd like to know a bit more about that. But anyway... Uh, and, and, and that is one issue, and then also in the, in the discussion, they're going to maybe still use some private ambulances. 
and, and this is the, uh, what I was saying earlier about you got to get the details. It's, I mean, I can go out tomorrow and say, let's give everybody a million dollars, but let's get the details on it. Because just because you say it until you, until you work it out. Teddy, j- just on the note that you said about the cataracts, uh, I was listening to VOCM and Linda Swain last week, and uh, there was this person on who was doing the wait times across Canada. And, and why this is so about the cataracts, why this is so important, um, this person uh, who, who was doing wait times on all medical procedures across with Linda, uh, she stated that 34% of Newfoundlanders and Labradorians are within 112 days wait um, um, national benchmark for cataract surgeries. And, and this is what I've been saying for, for a long while, for well over a year, year and a half, about the low number in the benchmark, but now with this uh, great news that they will they will be able to be seen uh, on a, a much more efficient time basis and hopefully we'll keep them down below the 112 days national average benchmark for seniors. So, uh, Patty, and for you personally, thank you for taking my calls on this because I know a lot of times and i got to have it when I feel I'm, 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 I'm right and I got to stand up. I uh, I got to have a, a sticking to the issue until it's done. And I got to give thank you for giving me the opportunity to bring it up. And because uh, I know the politicians are listening, I know the government is, is listening. And this is uh, this is this is great news for everybody. This is something that myself and Tom Osborne can celebrate. This is something that that all the residents can celebrate. This is good news for seniors with no extra expense to the government of Newfoundland and Labrador. Absolutely appreciate the time, Eddie. Eddie, thank you again very much. Take good care. Bye. Bye-bye. Eddie Joyce, the independent member of the House of Assembly, Humber Bay of Islands. All right, uh, we won't squeeze on another call, so we don't give a caller a short shrift. Uh, quick check out on the Twitter. You can comment on the show, guests, suggest topics, or whatever the case may be on the Twitter box for VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Email address is openline at VOCM.com. And my favorite, of course, when you pick up the phone and give us a call. And we will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.